Thursday. There was a newcomer in the village. New people were always a source of interest and speculation among the them. Footnote. It didn't matter what the four had called their gang over the years, the frequent name changes usually being prompted by whatever Adam had happened to have read or viewed the previous day. The Adam Young Squad? Adam and Co., the Hole in the Chalk Gang, the Really Well-Known Four, the Legion of Really Superheroes, the Quarry Gang, the Secret Four, the Justice Society of Tadfield, the Galaxatrons, the Four Just Persons, the Rebels. Everyone else always referred to them darkly as them, and eventually they did too. But this time Pepper had impressive news. She's moved into Jasmine Cottage, and she's a witch, she said. I know, because Mrs Henderson does the cleaning, and she told my mother she gets a witch's newspaper. She gets loads of ordinary newspapers too, but she gets this special witch's one. My father says there's no such thing as witches, said Wensleydale, who had fair wavy hair and peered seriously out at life through thick black-rimmed spectacles. It was widely believed that he had once been christened Jeremy, but no one ever used the name, not even his parents, who called him Youngster. They did this in the subconscious hope that he might take the hint. Wensleydale gave the impression of having been born with a mental age of forty-seven. Don't see why not, said Brian, who had a wide, cheerful face under an apparently permanent layer of grime. I don't see why witches shouldn't have their own newspaper, with stories about all the latest spells and that. My father gets Angler's Mail, and I bet there's more witches than anglers. It's called Psychic News, volunteered Pepper. That's not witches, said Wensleydale. My aunt has that. That's just spoon-bending and fortune-telling, and people thinking they were Queen Elizabeth I in another life. There's no witches anymore, actually. People invented medicines and that, and told them they didn't need them anymore, and started burning them. It could have pictures of frogs and things, said Brian, who was reluctant to let a good idea go to waste, and, and road tests of broomsticks and a cat's column. Anyway, your aunt could be a witch, said Pepper, in secret. She could be your aunt all day and go witching at night. Not my aunt, said Wensleydale darkly. And recipes, said Brian. New uses for leftover toad. Oh, shut up, said Pepper. Brian snorted. If it had been Wensley who had said that, there'd have been a half-hearted scuffle, as between friends. But the other them had long ago learned that Pepper did not consider herself bound by the informal conventions of brotherly scuffles. She could kick and bite with astonishing physiological accuracy for a girl of eleven. Besides, at eleven years old, the them were beginning to be bothered by the dim conception that laying hands on good old Pep moved things into blood-thumping categories they weren't entirely at home with yet, besides earning you a snake-fast blow that would have floored the karate kid. But she was good to have in your gang. They remembered with pride the time when Greasy Johnson and his gang had taunted them for playing with a girl. 
Pepper had erupted with a fury that had caused Greasy's mother to come round that evening and complain. Footnote. Greasy Johnson was a sad and oversized child. There's one in every school, not exactly fat, but simply huge and wearing almost the same size clothes as his father. Paper tore under his tremendous fingers, pens shattered in his grip. Children whom he tried to play with in quiet, friendly games ended up getting under his huge feet, and Greasy Johnson had become a bully almost in self-defence. After all, it was better to be called a bully, which at least implied some sort of control and desire, than to be called a big, clumsy oaf. He was the despair of the sportsmaster, because if Greasy Johnson had taken the slightest interest in sport, then the school could have been champions. But Greasy Johnson had never found a sport that suited him. He was instead secretly devoted to his collection of tropical fish, which won him prizes. Greasy Johnson was the same age as Adam Young to within a few hours, and his parents had never told him he was adopted. See? You were right about the babies. Pepper looked upon him, a giant male, as a natural enemy. She herself had short red hair and a face which was not so much freckled as one big freckle with occasional areas of skin. Pepper's given first names were Pippin Galadriel Moonchild. She'd been given them in a naming ceremony in a muddy valley field that contained three sick sheep and a number of leaky polythene teepees. Her mother had chosen the Welsh valley of Panty Girdle as the ideal site to return to nature. Six months later, sick of the rain, the mosquitoes, the men, the tent-trampling sheep, who ate first the whole commune's marijuana crop and then its antique minibus, and by now beginning to glimpse why almost the entire drive of human history has been an attempt to get as far away from nature as possible, Pepper's mother returned to Pepper's surprised grandparents in Tadfield, bought a bra, and enrolled in a sociology course with a deep sigh of relief. There are only two ways a child can go with a name like Pippin Galadriel Moonchild, and Pepper had chosen the other one. The three male them had learned this on their first day of school in the playground at the age of four. They had asked her her name, and, all innocent, she had told them. Subsequently, a bucket of water had been needed to separate Pippin Galadriel Moonchild's teeth from Adam's shoe. Wensleydale's first pair of spectacles had been broken, and Brian's sweater needed five stitches. The them were together from then on, and Pepper was Pepper forever, except to her mother, and when they were feeling especially courageous, and the them were almost out of earshot, Greasy Johnson and the Johnsonites the village's only other gang. Adam drummed his heels on the edge of the milk crate that was doing the office of a seat, listening to this bickering with the relaxed air of a king listening to the idle chatter of his courtiers. He chewed lazily on a straw. It was a Thursday morning. The holidays stretched ahead, endless and unsullied. They needed filling up. He let the conversation float around him like the buzzing of grasshoppers, or, more precisely, like a prospector watching the churning gravel for a glint of useful gold. 
In our Sunday paper, it said there was thousands of witches in the country, said Brian, worshipping nature and eating health food and that, so I don't see why we shouldn't have one round here. They were flooding the country with a wave of mindless evil, it said. What, by worshipping nature and eating health food, said Wensleydale. Well, that's what it said. The them gave this due consideration. They had once, at Adam's instigation, tried a health food diet for a whole afternoon. Their verdict was that you could live very well on healthy food, provided you had a big cooked lunch beforehand. Brian leaned forward conspiratorially. And it said they dance round with no clothes on, he added. They go up on hills and Stonehenge and stuff and dance with no clothes on. This time the consideration was more thoughtful. The them had reached that position where, as it were, the roller coaster of life had almost completed the long haul to the top of the first big humpback of puberty so that they could just look down into the precipitous ride ahead full of mystery, terror and exciting curves. <laughs> said Pepper. Not my aunt, said Wensleydale, breaking the spell. Definitely not my aunt. She just keeps trying to talk to my uncle. Your uncle's dead, said Pepper. She says he still moves a glass amount, said Wensleydale, defensively. My father says it was moving glasses about the whole time that made him dead in the first place. Don't know why she wants to talk to him, he added. They never talked much when he was alive. That's necromancy, that is, said Brian. It's in the Bible. She ought to stop it. God's dead against necromancy. And witches. You can go to hell for it. There was a lazy shifting of position on the milk crate throne. Adam was going to speak. The them fell silent. Adam was always worth listening to. Deep in their hearts, the them knew that they weren't a gang of four. They were a gang of three which belonged to Adam. But if you wanted excitement and interest and crowded days, then every them would prize a lowly position in Adam's gang above leadership of any other gang anywhere. Don't see why everyone's so down on witches, Adam said. The them glanced at one another. This sounded promising. Well, they'd like crops, said Pepper, and sink ships, and tell you if you're going to be king and stuff, and brew up stuff with herbs. My mother uses herbs, said Adam. So does yours. Oh, those are all right, said Brian, determined not to lose his position as occult expert. I expect God said it was all right to use mint and sage and so on. Stands to reason there's nothing wrong with mint and sage. And they can make you be ill just by looking at you, said Pepper. It's called the evil eye. They give you a look and then you get ill and no one knows why. And they make a model of you and stick it full of pins and you get ill where all the pins are, she added cheerfully. That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore, reiterated Wensleydale, the rational thinking person. Because we invented science and all the vicars set fire to the witches for their own good. It was called the Spanish Inquisition. Then I reckon we should find out if her at Jasmine Cottage is a witch and if she is, we should tell Mr Pickersgill, said Brian. Mr. Pickersgill was the vicar. Currently, he was in dispute with the them over subjects ranging from climbing the yew tree in the churchyard to ringing the bells and running away. I don't reckon it's allowed going round setting fire to people, said Adam. 
Otherwise, people would be doing it all the time. It's all right if you're religious, said Brian reassuringly, and it stops the witches from going to hell, so I expect they'd be quite grateful if they understood it properly. Can't see Picky setting fire to anyone, said Pepper. Oh, I don't know, said Brian meaningfully. Not actually setting them on an actual fire, sniffed Pepper. He's more likely to tell their parents and leave it up to them if anyone's going to be set on fire or not. The them shook their heads in disgust at the current low standards of ecclesiastical responsibility. Then the other three looked expectantly at Adam. They always looked expectantly at Adam. He was the one that had the ideas. Perhaps we ought to do it ourselves, he said. Someone ought to be doing something if there's all these witches about. It's, it's like that neighbourhood watch scheme. Neighbourhood witch, said Pepper. No, said Adam coldly. But we can't be the Spanish Inquisition, said Wensleydale. We're not Spanish. I bet you don't have to be Spanish to be the Spanish Inquisition, said Adam. I bet it's like Scottish eggs or American hamburgers. It just has to look Spanish. We've just got to make it look Spanish. Then everyone would know it's the Spanish Inquisition. There was silence. It was broken by the crackling of one of the empty crisp packets that accumulated wherever Brian was sitting. They looked at him. I've got a bullfight poster with my name on it, said Brian slowly. Lunchtime came and went. The new Spanish Inquisition reconvened. The head inquisitor inspected it critically. What are those? he demanded. You click them together when you dance, said Wensleydale a shade defensively. My aunt brought them back from Spain years ago. They're called maracas, I think. They've got a picture of a Spanish dancer on them. Look. What's she dancing with a ball for? said Adam. Well, that's to show it's Spanish, said Wensleydale. Adam let it pass. The bullfight poster was everything Brian had promised. Pepper had something rather like a gravy boat made out of raffia. It's for putting wine in, she said defiantly. My mother brought it back from Spain. It hasn't got a bull on it, said Adam severely. It doesn't have to, Pepper countered, moving just ever so slightly into a fighting stance. Adam hesitated. His sister Sarah and her boyfriend had also been to Spain. Sarah had returned with a very large purple toy donkey, which, while definitely Spanish, did not come up to what Adam instinctively felt should be the tone of the Spanish Inquisition. The boyfriend, on the other hand, had brought back a very ornate sword, which, despite its tendency to bend when picked up and go blunt when asked to cut paper, proclaimed itself to be made of Toledo steel. Adam had spent an instructive afternoon with the encyclopedia and felt that this was just what the Inquisition needed. Subtle hints had not worked, however. In the end, Adam had taken a bunch of onions from the kitchen. They might well have been Spanish. But even Adam had to concede that, as decor for the inquisitorial premises, they lacked that certain something. He was in no position to argue too vehemently about raffia wine holders. Very good, he said. You certain they're Spanish onions, said Pepper, relaxing. Course, said Adam. Spanish onions. Everyone knows that. 
They could be French, said Pepper doggedly. France is famous for onions. It doesn't matter, said Adam, who was getting fed up with onions. France is nearly Spanish, and I don't expect witches know the difference, what with spending all their time flying around at night. It all looks like the continent to witches. Anyway, if you don't like it, you can jolly well go and start your own inquisition. Anyway. For once, Pepper didn't push it. She'd been promised the post of head torturer. No one doubted who was going to be chief inquisitor. Wensleydale and Brian were less enthralled with their roles of inquisitorial guards. Well, you don't know any Spanish, said Adam, whose lunch hour had included ten minutes with a phrase book Sarah had bought in a haze of romanticism in Alicante. That doesn't matter, because actually you have to talk in Latin, said Wensleydale, who had also been doing some slightly more accurate lunchtime reading. And Spanish, said Adam firmly. That's why it's the Spanish Inquisition. I don't see why it shouldn't be a British Inquisition, said Brian. Don't see why we should have fought the Armada and everything just to have their smelly Inquisition. This had been slightly bothering Adam's patriotic sensibilities as well. I reckon, he said, that we should sort of start Spanish and then make it the British Inquisition when we've got the hang of it. And now, he added, the Inquisitorial Guard will go and fetch the first witch, por favor. The new inhabitant of Jasmine Cottage would have to wait, they'd decided. What they needed to do was start small and work their way up. Art thou a witch, Olay? said the chief inquisitor. Yes, said Pepper's little sister, who was six and built like a small golden-haired football. You mustn't say yes. You've got to say no, hissed the head torturer, nudging the suspect. And then what? demanded the suspect. And then we torture you to make you say yes, said the head torturer. I told you, it's good fun, the torturing. It doesn't hurt. Hasta la visa, she added quickly. The little suspect gave the decor of the inquisitorial headquarters a disparaging look. There was a decided odour of onions. Ah, she said. I want to be a witch with a warty nose and a green skin and a lovely cat, and I call it Blackie and lots of potions and... The head torturer nodded to the chief inquisitor. Look, said Pepper desperately. No one's saying you can't be a witch. You just have to say you're not a witch. No point in us taking all this trouble, she added severely, if you're going to go round saying yes the minute we ask you. The suspect considered this. But I want to be a witch, she wailed. The male them exchanged exhausted glances. This was out of their league. If you just say no said Pepper. You can have my Cindy's stable set. I've never, ever used it, she added, glaring at the other them and daring them to make a comment. You have used it, snapped her sister. I've seen it, and it's all worn out, and the bit where you put the hay is broke, and Adam gave a magisterial cough. Art thou a witch, viva España, he repeated. The sister took a look at Pepper's face and decided not to chance it. No, she decided. It was a very good torture, everyone agreed. The trouble was getting the putative witch off it. It was a hot afternoon, and the inquisitorial guards felt that they were being put upon. 
Don't see why me and Brother Brian should have to do all the work, said Brother Wensleydale, wiping the sweat off his brow. I reckon it's about time she got off and we had a go. Uh, Benedictine inner decanter. Why have we stopped? demanded the suspect, water pouring out of her shoes. It had occurred to the Chief Inquisitor during his researches that the British Inquisition was probably not yet ready for the reintroduction of the Iron Maiden and the Choke Pair. But an illustration of a medieval ducking stool suggested that it was tailor-made for the purpose. All you needed was a pond and some planks and a rope. It was the sort of combination that always attracted the them, who never had much difficulty in finding all three. The suspect was now green to the waist. It's just like a seesaw, she said. Wee! I'm going to go home unless I can have a go, muttered Brother Brian. Don't see why evil witches should have all the fun. It's not allowed for inquisitors to be tortured too, said the chief inquisitor sternly, but without much real feeling. It was a hot afternoon. The inquisitorial robes of old sacking were scratchy and smelled of stale barley, and the pond looked astonishingly inviting. All right, all right, he said and turned to the suspect. You're a witch, all right, don't do it again, and now you get off and let someone else have a turn. Olay, he added. What happens now? said Pepper's sister. Adam hesitated. Setting fire to her would probably cause no end of trouble, he reasoned. Besides, she was too soggy to burn. He was also distantly aware that at some future point there would be questions asked about muddy shoes and duckweed-encrusted pink dresses. But that was the future, and it lay at the other end of a long, warm afternoon that contained planks and ropes and ponds. The future could wait. The future came and went in the mildly discouraging way that futures do, although Mr. Young had other things on his mind apart from muddy dresses, and merely banned Adam from watching television, which meant he had to watch it on the old black-and-white set in his bedroom. I don't see why we should have a hosepipe ban, Adam heard Mr. Young telling Mrs. Young. I pay my rates like everyone else. The garden looks like the Sahara Desert. I'm surprised there was any water left in the pond. I blame it on the lack of nuclear testing myself. It used to get proper summers when I was a boy. Used to rain all the time. Now Adam slouched alone along the dusty lane. It was a good slouch. Adam had a way of slouching along that offended all right-thinking people. It wasn't that he just allowed his body to droop. He could slouch with inflections, and now the set of his shoulders reflected the hurt and bewilderment of those unjustly thwarted in their selfless desire to help their fellow men. Dust hung heavy on the bushes. Serve everyone right if the witches took over the whole country and made everyone eat health food and not go to church and dance around with no clothes on, he said, kicking a stone. He had to admit that, except perhaps for the health food, the prospect wasn't too worrying. I bet if they'd just let us get started properly, we could have found hundreds of witches, he told himself, kicking a stone. I bet old Torture Marder didn't have to give up just when he was getting started, just because some stupid witch got her dress dirty. 
dog slouched along dutifully behind his master. This wasn't, insofar as the hellhound had any expectations, what he had imagined life would be like in the last days before Armageddon, but despite himself, he was beginning to enjoy it. He heard his master say, But even the Victorians didn't force people to have to watch black-and-white television. Form shapes nature. There are certain ways of behaviour appropriate to small, scruffy dogs, which are in fact welded into the genes. You can't just become small dog-shaped and hope to stay the same person. A certain intrinsic small dogness begins to permeate your very being. He'd already chased a rat. It had been the most enjoyable experience of his life. Serve them right if we're all overcome by evil forces, his master grumbled. And then there were cats, thought Dog. He'd surprised the huge ginger cat from next door and had attempted to reduce it to cowering jelly by means of the usual glowing stare and deep-throated growl which had always worked on the damned in the past. This time they earned him a whack on the nose that had made his eyes water. Cats, Dog considered, were clearly a lot tougher than lost souls. He was looking forward to a further cat experiment, which he planned would consist of jumping around and yapping excitedly at it. It was a long shot, but it might just work. They'd just better not come running to me when old Picky has turned into a frog, that's all, muttered Adam. It was at this point that two facts dawned on him. One was that his disconsolate footsteps had led him past Jasmine Cottage. The other was that someone was crying. Adam was a soft touch for tears. He hesitated a moment and then cautiously peered over the hedge. To Anathema, sitting in a deck chair and halfway through a packet of Kleenex, it looked like the rise of a small dishevelled sun. Adam doubted that she was a witch. Adam had a very clear mental picture of a witch. The youngs restricted themselves to the only possible choice amongst the better class of Sunday newspaper, and so a hundred years of enlightened occultism had passed Adam by. She didn't have a hooked nose or warts, and she was young. Well, quite young. That was good enough for him. Hello, he said, unslouching. She blew her nose and stared at him. What was looking over the hedge should be described at this point. What Anathema saw was, she said later, something like a prepubescent Greek god, or maybe a biblical illustration, one which showed muscular angels doing some righteous smiting. It was a face that didn't belong in the 20th century. It was thatched with golden curls which glowed. Michelangelo should have sculpted it. He probably would not have included the battered sneakers, frayed jeans, or grubby T-shirt, though. "'Who are you?' she said. "'I'm Adam Young,' said Adam. "'I live just down the lane.' "'Oh, yes. I "'I've heard of you,' said Anathema, dabbing at her eyes. Adam preened. "'Mrs. Henderson said I was to be sure to keep an eye out for you,' she went on. "'I'm well known around here,' said Adam. "'She said you were born to hang,' said Anathema. Adam grinned. Notoriety wasn't as good as fame, but was heaps better than obscurity. "'She said you were the worst of the lot of them,' 
said Anathema, looking a little more cheerful. Adam nodded. She said, You watch out for them, miss. They're nothing but a pack of ringleaders. That young Adam's full of the old Adam, she said. What have you been crying for? said Adam, bluntly. Oh, oh, I've, I've just lost something, said Anathema. A book. I'll help you look for it, if you like, said Adam, gallantly. I know quite a lot about books, actually. I wrote a book once. It was a terrific book. It was nearly eight pages long. It was about this pirate who was a famous detective, and I drew the pictures. And then, in a flash of largesse, he added, If you like, I'll let you read it. I bet it was a lot more exciting than any book you've lost. Especially the bit in the spaceship where the dinosaur comes out and fights with the cowboys. I bet it'd cheer you up, my book. It cheered up Brian no end. He said he'd never been so cheered up. Well, thank you. I'm sure your book is a, a very good book, she said, endearing herself to Adam forever. But I don't need you to help look for my book. I, I think it's too late now. She looked thoughtfully at Adam. I expect you know this area very well, she said. For miles and miles, said Adam. You haven't seen two men in a big black car, said Anathema. Did they steal it? said Adam, suddenly full of interest. Foiling a gang of international book thieves would make a rewarding end to the day. Not really. Sort of. I mean, they didn't mean to. They were looking for the manor, but I went up there today and no one knows anything about them. There was some sort of accident or something, I believe. She stared at Adam. There was something odd about him, but she couldn't put her finger on it. She just had an urgent feeling that he was important and shouldn't be allowed to drift away. Something about him. What's the book called? said Adam. The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, Witch, said Anathema. Which what? No, which, like in Macbeth, said Anathema. I saw that, said Adam. It was really interesting, the way them kings carried on. Gosh! What's nice about them? Nice used to mean, well, precise or exact. Definitely something strange, a sort of laid-back intensity. You started to feel that if he was around, then everyone else, even the landscape, was just background. She'd been here a month. Except for Mrs. Henderson, who in theory looked after the cottage and probably went through her things, given half a chance, she hadn't exchanged more than a dozen real words with anyone. She let them think she was an artist. This was the kind of countryside that artists liked. Actually, it was bloody beautiful. Just around this village it was superb. If Turner and Landseer had met Samuel Palmer in a pub and worked it all out and then got Stubbs to do the horses, it couldn't have been better. And that was depressing because this was where it was going to happen, according to Agnes, anyway. In a book which she, Anathema, had allowed to be lost. She had the file cards, of course, but they just weren't the same. If Anathema had been in full control of her own mind at that moment, and no one around Adam was ever in full control of his or her own mind, she'd have noticed that whenever she tried to think about him beyond a superficial level, her thoughts slipped away like a duck off water. Wicked, said Adam, 
who'd been turning over in his mind the implications of a book of nice and accurate prophecies. It tells you who's going to win the Grand National, does it? No, said Anathema. Any spaceships in it? Not many, said Anathema. Robots, said Adam, hopefully. Sorry. Doesn't sound very nice to me, then, said Adam. Don't see what the future's got in it if there's no robots and spaceships. About three days, thought Anathema glumly. That's what it's got in it. Would you like a lemonade? she said. Adam hesitated. Then he decided to take the bull by the horns. Look, excuse me for asking, if it's not a personal question, but are you a witch? he said. Anathema narrowed her eyes, so much for Mrs. Henderson poking around. Some people might say so, she said. Actually, I'm an occultist. Oh, well, uh, that's all right then, said Adam, cheering up. She looked him up and down. You know what an occultist is, do you? she said. Oh, yes, said Adam, confidently. Well, so long as you're happier now, said Anathema. Come on in. I could do with a drink myself. And Adam Young? Yes. You were thinking nothing wrong with my eyes. They don't need examining, weren't you? Who? Me? said Adam guiltily. Dog was the problem. He wouldn't go in the cottage. He crouched on the doorstep, growling. Come on, you silly dog, said Adam. It's only old Jasmine Cottage. He gave Anathema an embarrassed look. Normally he does everything I say, right off. You can leave him in the garden, said Anathema. No, said Adam. He's got to do what he's told. I read it in a book. Training is very important. Any dog can be trained, it said. My father said I can only keep him if he's properly trained. Now, dog, go inside. Dog whined and gave him a pleading look. His stubby tail thumped on the floor once or twice. His master's voice. With extreme reluctance, as if making progress in the teeth of a gale, he slunk over the doorstep. There, said Adam proudly. Good boy. And a little bit more of hell burned away. Anathema shut the door. There had always been a horseshoe over the door of Jasmine Cottage, ever since its first tenant centuries before. The Black Death was all the rage at the time, and he'd considered that he could use all the protection he could get. It was corroded and half-covered with the paint of centuries, so neither Adam nor Anathema gave it a thought or noticed how it was now cooling from a white heat. Aziraphale's cocoa was stone-cold. The only sound in the room was the occasional turning of a page. Every now and again there was a rattling at the door when prospective customers of intimate books next door mistook the entrance. He ignored it. Occasionally he would very nearly swear. Anathema hadn't really made herself at home in the cottage. Most of her implements were piled up on the table. It looked interesting. It looked, in fact, as though a voodoo priest had just had the run of a scientific equipment store. Brilliant, said Adam, prodding at it. What's the thing with the three legs? It's a theodolite, said Anathema from the kitchen. 
It's for tracking ley lines. What are they, then? said Adam. She told him. Cool, he said. Are they? Yes. All over the place? Yes. I've never seen them. Amazing there being all these invisible lines of force around and me not seeing them. Adam didn't often listen, but he spent the most enthralling twenty minutes of his life, or at least of his life that day. No one in the young household so much as touched wood or threw salt over their shoulder. The only nod in the direction of the supernatural was a half-hearted pretense, when Adam had been younger, that Father Christmas came down the chimney. Footnote. If Adam had been in full possession of his powers in those days, the young's Christmas would have been spoiled by the discovery of a dead fat man upside down in their central heating duct. He'd been starved of anything more occult than a harvest festival. Her words poured into his mind like water into a choir of blotting paper. Dog lay under the table and growled. He was beginning to have serious doubts about himself. Anathema didn't only believe in ley lines, but in seals, whales, bicycles, rainforests, whole grain in loaves, recycled paper, white South Africans out of South Africa, and Americans out of practically everywhere, down to and including Long Island. She didn't compartmentalize her beliefs. They were welded into one enormous, seamless belief, compared with which that held by Joan of Arc seemed a mere idle notion. On any scale of mountain moving, it shifted at least 0.5 of an alp. Footnote. It may be worth noting here that most human beings can rarely raise more than 0.3 of an alp, 30 centialps. Adam believed things on a scale ranging from 2 through to 15,640 Everests. No one had even used the word environment in Adam's hearing before. The South American rainforests were a closed book to Adam, and it wasn't even made of recycled paper. The only time he interrupted her was to agree with her views on nuclear power. I've been to a nuclear power station. It was boring. There was no green smoke and bubbling stuff in tubes. Shouldn't be allowed not having proper bubbling stuff when people have come all the way to see it and having just a lot of men standing around not even wearing spacesuits. They do all the bubbling after visitors have gone home, said Anathema grimly. Huh, said Adam. They should be done away with this minute. Serve them right for not bubbling, said Adam. Anathema nodded. She was still trying to put her finger on what was so odd about Adam. And then she realized what it was. He had no aura. She was quite an expert on auras. She could see them if she stared hard enough. They were a little glow of light around people's heads, and according to a book she'd read, the colour told you things about their health and general well-being. Everyone had one. In mean-minded, closed-in people, they were a faint, trembling outline, whereas expansive and creative people might have one extending several inches from the body. She'd never heard of anyone without one but she couldn't see one around Adam at all. Yet he seemed cheerful, enthusiastic, and as well-balanced as a gyroscope. Maybe I'm just tired, she thought. 
Anyway, she was pleased and gratified to find such a rewarding student, and even loaned him some copies of New Aquarian Digest, a small magazine edited by a friend of hers. It changed Adam's life. At least it changed his life for that day. To his parents' astonishment, he went to bed early, and then lay under the blankets until after midnight with a torch, the magazines, and a bag of lemon drops. The occasional brilliant emerged from his ferocious chewing mouth. When the batteries ran out, he emerged into the darkened room and lay back with his head pillowed in his hands, apparently watching the squadron of X-wing fighters that hung from the ceiling. They moved gently in the night breeze, but Adam wasn't really watching them. He was staring instead into the brightly lit panorama of his own imagination, which was whirling like a fairground. This wasn't Wensleydale's aunt and a wine glass. This sort of occulting was a lot more interesting. Besides, he liked Anathema. Of course, she was very old, but when Adam liked someone, he wanted to make them happy. He wondered how he could make Anathema happy. It used to be thought that the events that changed the world were things like big bombs, maniac politicians, huge earthquakes, or vast population movements. But it has now been realised that this is a very old-fashioned view held by people totally out of touch with modern thought. The things that really change the world, according to chaos theory, are the tiny things. A butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazonian jungle, and subsequently a storm ravages half of Europe. Somewhere in Adam's sleeping head, a butterfly had emerged. It might or might not have helped Anathema get a clear view of things if she'd been allowed to spot the very obvious reason why she couldn't see Adam's aura. It was for the same reason that people in Trafalgar Square can't see England. Alarms went off. Of course, there's nothing special about alarms going off in the control room of a nuclear power station. They do it all the time. It's because there are so many dials and meters and things that something important might not get noticed if it doesn't at least beep. And the job of shift-charge engineer calls for a solid, capable, unflappable kind of man, the kind you can depend upon not to make a beeline for the car park in an emergency. The kind of man, in fact, who gives the impression of smoking a pipe even when he's not. It was 3 a.m. in the control room of Turning Point Power Station, normally a nice quiet time, when there's nothing much to do but fill in the log and listen to the distant roar of the turbines. Until now. Horace Gander looked at the flashing red lights. Then he looked at some dials. Then he looked at the faces of his fellow workers. Then he raised his eyes to the big dial at the far end of the room. 420 practically dependable and very nearly cheap megawatts were leaving the station. According to the other dials, nothing was producing them. He didn't say, that's weird. He wouldn't have said, that's weird, if a flock of sheep had cycled past playing violins. It wasn't the sort of thing a responsible engineer said. What he did say was, Alf, you'd better ring the station manager.
Three very crowded hours went past. They involved quite a lot of phone calls, telexes and faxes. Twenty-seven people were got out of bed in quick succession, and they got another fifty-three out of bed. Because if there is one thing a man wants to know when he's woken up in a panic at 4am, it's that he's not alone. Anyway, you need all sorts of permissions before they let you unscrew the lid of a nuclear reactor and look inside. They got them. They unscrewed it. They had a look inside. Horace Gander said, There's got to be a sensible reason for this. 500 tonnes of uranium don't just get up and walk away. A meter in his hand should have been screaming. Instead, it let out the occasional half-hearted tick. Where the reactor should have been was an empty space. You could have had quite a nice game of squash in it. Right at the bottom, all alone in the centre of the bright, cold floor, was a lemon drop. Outside, in the cavernous turbine hall, the machines roared on. And, a hundred miles away, Adam Young turned over in his sleep. Friday. Raven Sable, slim and bearded and dressed all in black, sat in the back of his slimline black limousine, talking on his slimline black telephone to his West Coast base. How's it going? he asked. Looking good, Chief, said his marketing head. I'm doing breakfast with the buyers from all the leading supermarket chains tomorrow. No problem. We'll have meals in all the stores this time next month. Good work, Nick. Oh, no problem, no problem. It's knowing you're behind us, Rave. You give great leadership, Guy. Works for me every time. Thank you, said Sable, and he broke the connection. He was particularly proud of meals. The Nutrition Corporation had started small 11 years ago. A small team of food scientists, a huge team of marketing and public relations personnel, and a neat logo. Two years of nutrition investment and research had produced chow. Chow contained spun, plaited and woven protein molecules, capped and coated, carefully designed to be ignored by even the most ravenous digestive tract enzymes, no cow sweeteners, mineral oils replacing vegetable oils, fibrous materials, colourings and flavourings. The end result was a foodstuff almost indistinguishable from any other, except for two things. Firstly, the price, which was slightly higher, and secondly, the nutritional content, which was roughly equivalent to that of a Sony Walkman. It didn't matter how much you ate, you lost weight. Footnote. And hair. And skin tone. And, if you ate enough of it long enough vital signs. Fat people had bought it. Thin people who didn't want to get fat had bought it. Chow was the ultimate diet food, carefully spun, woven, textured and pounded to imitate anything from potatoes to venison, although the chicken sold best. 
Sable sat back and watched the money roll in. He watched Chow gradually fill the ecological niche that used to be filled by the old, untrademarked food. He followed Chow with snacks, junk food made from real junk. Meals was Sable's latest brainwave. Meals was chow with added sugar and fat. The theory was that if you ate enough meals, you would A, get very fat, and B, die of malnutrition. The paradox delighted Sable. Meals were currently being tested all over America. Pizza meals, fish meals, Sichuan meals, macrobiotic meals, even hamburger meals. Sable's limousine was parked in the lot of a Des Moines, Iowa burger lord, a fast food franchise wholly owned by his organization. It was here they'd been piloting hamburger meals for the last six months. He wanted to see what kind of results they'd been getting. He leaned forward, tapped the chauffeur's glass partition. The chauffeur pressed a switch and the glass slid open. Sir? I'm going to take a look at our operation, Marlon. I'll be ten minutes, then back to L.A. Sir! Sable sauntered into the Burger Lord. It was exactly like every other Burger Lord in America. Footnote. But not like every other Burger Lord across the world. German Burger Lords, for example, sold lager instead of root beer, while English Burger Lords managed to take any American fast food virtues, the speed with which your food was delivered, for example, and carefully remove them. Your food arrived after half an hour at room temperature, and it was only because of the strip of warm lettuce between them that you could distinguish the burger from the bun. The Burger Lord Pathfinder salesman had been shot 25 minutes after setting foot in France. McLordy the Clown danced in the kiddie corner. The serving staff had identical gleaming smiles that never reached their eyes. And behind the counter, a chubby middle-aged man in a Burger Lord uniform slapped burgers onto the griddle, whistling softly, happy in his work. Sable went up to the counter. Hello, my name is Marie, said the girl behind the counter. How can I help you? A double blaster, thunder biggin, extra fries, hold the mustard, he said. Anything to drink? A special thick, whippy, choco-banana shake. She pressed the little pictogram squares on her till. Literacy was no longer a requirement for employment in these restaurants. Smiling was. Then she turned to the chubby man behind the counter. D-B-T-B-E-F, hold mustard, she said. Chuck shake. <laughs> crooned the cook. He sorted the food into little paper containers, pausing only to brush the graying cowlick from his eyes. Here you are, he said. She took them without looking at him, and he returned cheerfully to his griddle, singing quietly, Love me tender, love me long, never let me go. The man's humming, Sable noted, clashed with the Burgerlord background music, a tinny tape loop of the Burgerlord commercial jingle, and he made a mental note to have him fired. Hello, my name is Marie, gave Sable his meal and told him to have a nice day. He found a small plastic table, sat down in the plastic seat, and examined his food. Artificial bread roll, artificial burger, 
fries that had never even seen potatoes, foodless sauces, even, and Sable was especially pleased with this, an artificial slice of dill pickle. He didn't bother to examine his milkshake. It had no actual food content, but then again, neither did those sold by any of his rivals. All around him, people were eating their unfood with if not actual evidence of enjoyment, then with no more actual disgust than was to be found in burger chains all over the planet. He stood up, took his tray over to the Please Dispose of Your Refuse with Care receptacle, and dumped the whole thing. If you had told him that there were children starving in Africa, he would have been flattered that you'd noticed. There was a tug at his sleeve. Party name of Sable? asked a small, bespectacled man in an International Express cap holding a brown paper parcel. Sable nodded. Thought it was you. Looked around, thought tall gent with a beard, nice suit, can't be that many of them here. Package for you, sir. Sable signed for it, his real name. One word, six letters. Sounds like examine. Thank you kindly, sir, said the delivery man. He paused. Here, he said, that bloke behind the counter, does he remind you of anyone? No, said Sable. He gave the man a tip, five dollars, and opened the package. In it was a small pair of brass scales. Sable smiled. It was a slim smile, and was gone almost instantly. About time, he said. He thrust the scales into his pocket, unheeding of the damage being done to the sleek line of his black suit, and went back to the limo. Back to the office? asked the chauffeur. The airport, said Sable, and call ahead. I want a ticket to England. Yes, sir. Return ticket to England. Sable fingered the scales in his pocket. Make that a single, he said. I'll be making my own way back. Oh, and call the office for me. Cancel all appointments. How long for, sir? The foreseeable future. And in the burger lord, behind the counter, the stout man with the cowlick slid another half-dozen burgers onto the grill. He was the happiest man in the whole world. And he was singing, very softly. Ye ain't never caught a rabbit, he hummed to himself, and ye ain't no friend of mine. The them listened with interest. There was a light drizzle which was barely kept at bay by the old iron sheets and frayed bits of lino that roofed their den in the quarry, and they always looked to Adam to think up things to do when it was raining. They weren't disappointed. Adam's eyes were agleam with the joy of knowledge. It had been 3 a.m. before he'd gone to sleep under a pile of new aquariums. And then... There was this man called Charles Fort, he said. He could make it rain fish and frogs and stuff. Huh, said Pepper. I bet. Alive frogs? Oh, yes, said Adam, warming to his subject, hopping around and croaking and everything. People paid him money to go away in the end, and, and he racked his brains for something that would satisfy his audience. He'd done for Adam a lot of reading in one go. And he sailed off in the Mary Celeste and founded the Bermuda Triangle. It's in Bermuda, he added, helpfully. No, he couldn't have done that, said Winsleydale sternly, because I've read about the Mary Celeste and there was no one on it. It's famous for having no one on it. 
They found it floating around all by itself, with no one on it. I didn't say he was on it when they found it, did I? said Adam scathingly. Course he wasn't on it. Cause of the UFOs landing and taking him off. I thought everyone knew about that. The them relaxed a bit. They were on firmer ground with UFOs. They weren't entirely certain about New Age UFOs, though. They'd listened politely to Adam on the subject, but somehow modern UFOs lacked punch. If I was an alien, said Pepper, voicing the opinion of them all, I wouldn't go around telling people all about mystic cosmic harmony. I'd say... Her voice became hoarse and nasal, like someone hampered by an evil black mask. This is a laser blaster. Shall you do what you're told, rebel swine? They all nodded. A favourite game in Quarry had been based on a highly successful film series with lasers, robots, and a princess who wore her hair like a pair of stereo headphones. It had been agreed, without a word being said, that if anyone was going to play the part of any stupid princesses, it wasn't going to be Pepper. But the game normally ended in a fight to be the one who was allowed to wear the coal scuttle and blow up planets. Adam was best at it. When he was the villain, he really sounded as if he could blow up the world. The them were, anyway, temperamentally on the side of planet destroyers, provided they could be allowed to rescue princesses at the same time. I expect that's what they used to do, said Adam, but now it's different. They all have this bright blue light around them and go around doing good. Sort of galactic policemen going around telling everyone to live in universal harmony and stuff. There was a moment's silence while they pondered this waste of perfectly good UFOs. What I've always wondered, said Brian, is why they call them UFOs when they know they're flying saucers. I mean, they're identified flying objects, then. It's because the government hushes it all up, said Adam. Millions of flying saucers landing all the time, and the government keeps hushing it up. Why? said Wensleydale. Adam hesitated. His reading hadn't provided a quick explanation for this. New Aquarian just took it as the foundation of belief, both of itself and its readers, that the government hushed everything up. "'Cause they're the government,' said Adam, simply. "'That's what governments do. "'They've got this great big building in London "'full of books of all the things they've hushed up. "'When the Prime Minister gets into work in the morning, "'the first thing he does is go through the big list "'of everything that's happened in the night "'and put this big red stamp on them. "'I bet he has a cup of tea first, and then reads the paper,' "'said Wensleydale, who had, on one memorable occasion during the holidays, "'gone unexpectedly into his father's office.' where he had formed certain impressions. And talks about what was on TV last night. Well, all right, but after that he gets out the book and the big stamp. Which says, hush it up, said Pepper. It says, top secret, said Adam, resenting this attempt at bipartisan creativity. It's like the nuclear power stations. They keep blowing up all the time, but no one ever finds out because the government hushes it up. They don't keep blowing all the time, said Wensleydale severely. My father says they're dead safe and mean we don't have to live in a greenhouse. Anyway, there's a big picture of one in my comic, and it doesn't say anything about it blowing up. Footnote. Wensleydale's alleged comic was a 94-week part work called Wonders of Nature and Science. 
He had every single one so far, and had asked for a set of binders for his birthday. Brian's weekly reading was anything with a lot of exclamation marks in the title, like whiz or clang. So was Pepper's, although even under the most refined of tortures, she still wouldn't admit to the fact that she also bought just seventeen under plain covers. Adam didn't read any comics at all. They never lived up to the kind of things he could do in his head. Yes, said Brian, but you lent me that comic afterwards, and I know what type of picture it was. Wensleydale hesitated, and then said, in a voice heavy with badly tried patience, "Brian, just because it says exploded diagram." There was the usual brief scuffle. Look, said Adam severely. Do you want me to tell you about the aquarium age or not? The fight, never very serious amongst the siblinghood of the them, subsided. Right," said Adam. He scratched his head. Now you've made me forget where I've got to," he complained. "Flying saucers," said Brian. "Right, right. Well, if you do see a flying UFO, these government men come and tell you off," said Adam, getting back into his stride in a big black car. It happens all the time in America. The them nodded sagely. Of this, at least, they had no doubt. America was to them the place that good people went to when they died. They were prepared to believe that just about anything could happen in America. Probably causes traffic jams," said Adam. All these men in black cars going about telling people off for seeing UFOs. They tell you that if you go on seeing them, you'll have a nasty accident. Probably get run over by a big black car," said Brian, picking at a scab on a dirty knee. He brightened up. "Do you know?" he said. "My cousin said that in America there's shops that sell thirty-nine different flavors of ice cream." This even silenced Adam briefly. "There aren't thirty-nine flavors of ice cream," said Pepper. "There aren't thirty-nine flavors in the whole world." "Oh, there could be if you mix them up." Said Wensleydale, blinking owlishly, "You know, strawberry and chocolate, chocolate and vanilla." He sought for more English flavors: strawberry and vanilla, and chocolate. He added lamely, "And then there's Atlantis," said Adam loudly. He had their interest there. They enjoyed Atlantis. Cities that sank under the sea were right up the then street. They listened intently to a jumbled account of pyramids, weird priesthoods, and ancient secrets. Did it just happen sudden or slowly? Said Brian. Sort of sudden and slowly, said Adam, because a lot of them got away in boats to all the other countries and taught them how to do maths and English and history and stuff. Don't see what's so great about that, said Pepper. Could have been good fun when it was sinking," said Brian wistfully, recalling the one occasion when Lower Tadfield had been flooded, people delivering the milk and newspapers by boat, no one having to go to school. If I was an Atlantisan, I'd have stayed," said Wensleydale. This was greeted with disdainful laughter, but he pressed on. "You'd just have to wear a diver's helmet, that's all, and nail all the windows shut, and fill the houses with air. It would be great."
Adam greeted this with the chilly stare he reserved for any of them who came up with an idea he really wished he'd thought of first. They could have done, he conceded, somewhat weakly, after they'd sent all the teachers off in the boats. Maybe everyone else stayed on when it went down. You wouldn't have to wash, said Brian, whose parents forced him to wash a great deal more than he thought could possibly be healthy. Not that it did any good. There was something basically ground in about Brian. Because everything would stay clean. And, and you could grow seaweed and stuff in the garden. And shoot sharks. And have pet octopuses and stuff. And there wouldn't be any schools and stuff because they'd have got rid of all the teachers. They could still be down there now, said Pepper. They thought about the Atlanteans, clad in flowing mystic robes and goldfish bowls, enjoying themselves deep under the choppy waters of the ocean. Ah, <sighs> said Pepper, summing up their feelings. What shall we do now, said Brian. It's brightened up a bit. In the end, they played Charles Fort discovering things. This consisted of one of the them walking around with the ancient remains of an umbrella, while the others treated him to a rain of frogs, or rather, frog. They could only find one in the pond. It was an elderly frog who knew the them of old and tolerated their interest as the price it paid for a pond otherwise free of moorhens and pike. It put up with things good-naturedly for a while before hopping off to a secret and so far undiscovered hideout in an old drainpipe. Then they went home for lunch. Adam felt very pleased about the morning's work. He'd always known that the world was an interesting place, and his imagination had peopled it with pirates and bandits and spies and astronauts and similar. But he'd also had a nagging suspicion that when you seriously got right down to it, they were all just things in books and didn't properly exist anymore, whereas this aquarium-age stuff was really real. Grown-up people wrote lots of books about it. New Aquarian was full of adverts for them. And Bigfoots and Mothmen and Yetis and Sea Monsters and Surrey Pumas really existed. If Cortez, on his peak in Darien, had had slightly damp feet from efforts at catching frogs, he'd have felt just like Adam. At that moment. The world was bright and strange, and he was in the middle of it. He bolted his lunch and retired to his room. There were still quite a few new Aquarians he hadn't read yet. The cocoa was a congealed brown sludge half-filling the cup. Certain people had spent hundreds of years trying to make sense of the prophecies of Agnes Nutter, they had been very intelligent in the main. Anathema Device, who was about as close to being Agnes as genetic drift would allow, was the best of the bunch. But none of them had been angels. Many people meeting Aziraphale for the first time formed three impressions. That he was English, that he was intelligent, and that he was gayer than a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxide. Two of these were wrong. Heaven is not in England, whatever certain poets may have thought, and angels are sexless, unless they really want to make an effort. But he was intelligent, and it was an angelic intelligence which, while not being particularly higher than human intelligence, is much broader and has the advantage of having thousands of years of practice. 
Aziraphale was the first angel ever to own a computer. It was a cheap, slow, plasticky one, much touted as ideal for the small businessman. Aziraphale used it religiously for doing his accounts, which were so scrupulously accurate that the tax authorities had inspected him five times in the deep belief that he was getting away with murder somewhere. But these other calculations were of a kind no computer could ever do. Sometimes he would scribble something on a sheet of paper by his side. It was covered in symbols which only eight other people in the world would have been able to comprehend. Two of them had won Nobel Prizes, and one of the other six dribbled a lot and wasn't allowed anything sharp because of what he might do with it. Anathema lunched on miso soup and pored over her maps. There was no doubt the area around Tadfield was rich in ley lines. Even the famous Reverend Watkins had identified some. But unless she was totally wrong, they were beginning to shift position. She'd spent the week taking soundings with theodolite and pendulum, and the ordnance survey map of the Tadfield area was now covered with little dots and arrows. She stared at them for some time. Then she picked up a felt-tip pen, and with occasional references to her notebook, began to join them up. The radio was on. She wasn't really listening, so quite a lot of the main news item passed right by her unheeding ears. And it wasn't until a couple of key words filtered down into her consciousness that she began to take notice. Someone called a spokesman sounded close to hysteria. Danger to employees or the public, he was saying. And precisely how much nuclear material has escaped, said the interviewer. There was a pause. We wouldn't say escaped, said the spokesman. Not escaped, temporarily mislaid. You mean it is still on the premises? We certainly cannot see how it could have been removed from them, said the spokesman. Well, surely you have considered terrorist activity? There was another pause. Then the spokesman said, in the quiet tones of someone who has had enough and is going to quit after this and raise chickens somewhere, yes, I suppose we must. All we need to do is find some terrorists who are capable of taking an entire nuclear reactor out of its can while it's running and without anyone noticing. It weighs about a thousand tons and is forty feet high, so they'll be quite strong terrorists. Perhaps you'd like to ring them up, sir, and ask them questions in that supercilious accusatory way of yours. But you said the power station is still producing electricity, gasped the interviewer. It is. Well, how can it still be doing that if it hasn't got any reactors? You could see the spokesman's mad grin, even on the radio. You could see his pen poised over the farms for sale column in Poultry World. We don't know, he said. We were hoping you clever buggers at the BBC would have an idea. Anathema looked down at her map. What she'd been drawing looked like a galaxy, or the type of carving seen on the better class of Celtic monolith. The ley lines were shifting. They were forming a spiral. It was centred loosely, with some margin for error, but nevertheless centred on Lower Tadfield. Several thousand miles away, at almost the same moment as Anathema was staring at her spirals, 
The pleasure cruiser Morbili was aground in three hundred fathoms of water. For Captain Vincent, this was just another problem. For example, he knew he should contact the owners, but he never knew from day to day or from hour to hour in this computerized world exactly who the current owners were. Computers. That was a bloody trouble. The ship's papers were computerized, and it could switch to the most currently advantageous flag of convenience in microseconds. Its navigation had been computerized as well, constantly updating its position by satellites. Captain Vincent had explained patiently to the owners, whoever they were, that several hundred square meters of steel plating and a barrel of rivets would be a better investment. And had been informed that his recommendation did not accord with current cost-benefit flow predictions. Captain Vincent strongly suspected that, despite all its electronics, the ship was worth more sunk than afloat, and would probably go down as the most perfectly pinpointed wreck in nautical history. By inference, this also meant that he was more valuable dead than alive. He sat at his desk. Quietly leafing through international maritime codes, whose six hundred pages contained brief yet pregnant messages designed to transmit the news of every conceivable nautical eventuality across the world, with the minimum of confusion and, above all, cost. What he wanted to say was this: was sailing south southwest at position thirty three degrees north latitude forty seven degrees seventy two minutes west longitude. First mate, who you may recall was appointed in New Guinea against my wishes and is probably a headhunter, indicated by signs that something was amiss. It appears that quite a vast expanse of seabed has risen up in the night. It contains a large number of buildings, many of which appeared pyramid-like in structure. We are aground in the courtyard of one of these. There are some rather unpleasant statues. Amiable old men in long robes and diving helmets have come aboard the ship and are mingling happily with the passengers, who think we organised this. Please advise. His questing finger moved slowly down the page, and stopped. Good old international codes—they'd been devised eighty years before, but the men in those days had really thought hard about the kind of perils that might possibly be encountered on the deep. He picked up his pen, and wrote down, X X X V, Q V V X. Translated, it meant. Have found lost continent of Atlantis. High priest has just won quoits contest. It jolly well isn't. It jolly well is. It isn't, you know. It jolly well is. It isn't. Oh, you're right then. What about volcanoes? Winsleydale sat back, a look of triumph on his face. What about 'em? Said Adam. All that lava comes up from the centre of the earth, where it's all hot. Said Wensleydale. I saw a program. It had David Attenborough, so it's true. The other then looked at Adam. It was like watching a tennis match. The hollow earth theory was not going over well in the quarry. A beguiling idea that had stood up to the probings of such remarkable thinkers as Cyrus Reed Tweed, Bulwer Lytton, and Adolf Hitler was bending dangerously in the wind of Wensleydale's searingly bespectacled logic.
I didn't say it was hollow all the way through, said Adam. No one said it was hollow all the way through. It probably goes down miles and miles to make room for all the lather and oil and coal and Tibetan tunnels and such like. But then it's hollow after that. That's what people think. And there's a hole at the North Pole to let the air in. Never seen it on an atlas, sniffed Wensleydale. The government won't let them put it on a map in case people go and have a look in, said Adam. The reason being... The people living inside don't want people looking down on them all the time. What do you mean, Tibetan tunnels, said Pepper. You said Tibetan tunnels. Ah, oh, didn't I tell you about them? Three heads shook. It's amazing. You know, Tibet? They nodded doubtfully. A series of images had risen in their minds. Yaks, Mount Everest, people called Grasshopper, little old men sitting on mountains, other people learning Kung Fu in ancient temples, and snow. Well, you know all those teachers that left Atlantis when it sunk? They nodded again. Well, some of them went to Tibet, and now they run the world. They're called the Secret Masters, on account of being teachers, I suppose. And they've got this secret underground city called Shambhala and tunnels that go all over the world so they know everything that goes on and control everything. Some people reckon that they really live under the Gobi Desert, he added loftily. But most competent authorities reckon it's Tibet all right. Better for the tunneling, anyway. The them instinctively looked down at the grubby, dirt-covered chalk beneath their feet. How come they know everything? said Pepper. Well, they just have to listen, right? hazarded Adam. They just have to sit in their tunnels and listen. You know what hearing teachers have? They can hear a whisper right across the room. My granny used to put a glass against the wall, said Brian. She said it was disgusting the way she could hear everything that went on next door. And these tunnels go everywhere, do they? said Pepper, still staring at the ground. All over the world, said Adam firmly. Must have took a long time, said Pepper, doubtfully. You remember when we tried digging that tunnel out in the field, we were at it all afternoon, and you had to scrunch up to get all in. Yes, but they've been doing it for millions of years. You can do really good tunnels if you've got millions of years. I thought the Tibetans were conquered by the Chinese, and the Dalai Lama had to go to India, said Wensleydale, but without much conviction. Wensleydale read his father's newspaper every evening, but the prosaic everydayness of the world always seemed to melt under the powerhouse of Adam's explanations. I bet they're down there now, said Adam, ignoring this. They'd be all over the place by now, sitting underground and listening. They looked at one another. If we dug down quickly, said Brian, Pepper, who was a lot quicker on the uptake, groaned. What did you go and have to say that for? said Adam. Fat lot of good us trying to surprise them now, isn't it? With you shouting out something like that. I was just thinking we could dig down, and you just have to go and warn them. I don't think they dig all those tunnels, said Wensleydale doggedly. It doesn't make any sense. Tibet's hundreds of miles away. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I suppose you know more about it than Madame Blatvatatatsky, sniffed Adam. Now... If I was a Tibetan, 
said Wensleydale, in a reasonable tone of voice. I'd just dig straight down to the hollow bit in the middle, and then run around the inside, and dig straight up where I wanted to be. They gave this due consideration. You've got to admit that's more sensible than tunnels, said Pepper. Yes, well, I expect that's what they do, said Adam. They'd be bound to have thought of something as simple as that. Brian stared dreamily at the sky while his finger probed the contents of one ear. Funny, really, he said. You spend your whole life going to school and learning stuff, and they never tell you about stuff like the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and all these old masters running around the inside of the earth. Why do we have to learn boring stuff when there's all this brilliant stuff we could be learning? That's what I want to know. There was a chorus of agreement. Then they went out and played Charles Fort and the Atlantisans versus the ancient masters of Tibet. But the Tibetans claimed that using mystic ancient lasers was cheating. There was a time when witch-finders were respected, although it didn't last very long. Matthew Hopkins, for example, the witch-finder general, found witches all over the east of England in the middle of the 17th century, charging each town and village ninepence a witch for every one he discovered. That was the trouble. Witch-finders didn't get paid by the hour. Any witch-finder who spent a week examining the local crones and then told the mayor, well done, not a pointy hat among the lot of them, would get fulsome thanks, a bowl of soup and a meaningful goodbye. So, in order to turn a profit, Hopkins had to find a remarkable number of witches. This made him more than a little unpopular with the village councils, and he was himself hanged as a witch by an East Anglian village who had sensibly realised that they could cut their overheads by eliminating the middleman. It is thought by many that Hopkins was the last witchfinder general. In this, they would, strictly speaking, be correct. Possibly not in the way they imagine, however. The Witchfinder army marched on, just slightly more quietly. There is no longer a real Witchfinder general. Nor is there a Witchfinder colonel, a Witchfinder major, a Witchfinder captain, or even a Witchfinder lieutenant. The last one was killed falling out of a very tall tree in Caterham in 1933 while attempting to get a better view of something he believed was a satanic orgy of the most degenerate persuasion, but was, in fact, the Caterham and Whiteleaf Market Traders Association annual dinner and dance. There is, however, a witch-finder sergeant. There is also, now, a witch-finder private. His name is Newton Pulsifer. It was the advertisement that got him in the Gazette between a fridge for sale and a litter of not-exactly Dalmatians. Join the professionals part-time. Assistant required to combat the forces of darkness. Uniform, basic training provided. Field promotion certain. Be a man. In his lunch hour, he phoned the number at the bottom of the ad. A woman answered. Uh, hello he began, tentatively. I saw your advert. Oh, which one, love? Um, the one in the paper. Right, love. Well, Madame Tracy draws aside the veil every afternoon except Thursdays. Party's welcome. When would you be wanting to explore the mysteries, love? Newton hesitated. Well, the advert says, join the professionals, 
he said. It didn't mention Madame Tracy. Oh, that'll be Mr. Shadwell you'll be wanting, then. Just a sec. I'll see if he's in. Later, when he was on nodding terms with Madame Tracy, Newt learned that if he had mentioned the other ad, the one in the magazine, Madame Tracy would have been available for strict discipline and intimate massage every evening except Thursdays. There was yet another ad in a phone box somewhere. When, much later, Newt asked her what this one involved, she said, Thursdays. Eventually, there was the sound of feet in uncarpeted hallways, a deep coughing, and a voice the colour of an old raincoat rumbled, I. Oh, I read your advert. Join the professionals. I, I wanted to know a bit more about it. Aye, there's many as would like to know more about it. And there's many. The voice trailed off impressively, then crashed back to full volume. There's many as wouldn't. Oh? squeaked Newton. What's your name, lad? Newton. Newton Pulsifer. Lucifer, was that you say? Are ye of the spawn of darkness, a tempting beguiling creature from the pit, wanton limbs steaming from the flesh pots of Hades, in tortured and lubricious thrall to your Stygian and hellish masters? That's Pulsifer, explained Newton, with a P. I don't know about the other stuff, but we come from Surrey. The voice on the phone sounded vaguely disappointed. Oh, aye. Well then, Pulsifer. Pulsifer. I've seen that name afore, maybe. I don't know, said Newton. My uncle runs a toy shop in Hounslow, he added, in case this was any help. Is that so? said Shadwell. Mr. Shadwell's accent was unplaceable. It careered around Britain like a milk race. Here a mad Welsh drill sergeant, there a high Kirk elder who'd just seen someone doing something on a Sunday. Somewhere between them, a doer Dale Land Shepherd or bitter Somerset miser. It didn't matter where the accent went, it didn't get any nicer. Have ye all your own teeth? Oh, yes, except for fillings. Are ye fit? Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Newt stuttered. I mean, that was why I wanted to join the Territorials. Brian Potter in accounting can bench-press almost a hundred since he joined, and he paraded in front of the Queen Mother. How many nipples? Pardon? Nipples, laddie, nipples, said the voice testily. How many nipples are you got? Uh, two. Good. Have you got your own scissors? What? Scissors! Scissors, are you deaf? No, uh, yes, I, I mean, no, I've got some scissors. I'm not deaf. The cocoa had nearly all solidified. Green fur was growing on the inside of the mug. There was a thin layer of dust on a zero-fail, too. The stack of notes was building up beside him. The nice and accurate prophecies was a mass of improvised bookmarks made of torn strips of Daily Telegraph. Aziraphale stirred and pinched his nose. He was nearly there. He got the shape of it. He'd never met Agnes. She was too bright, obviously. 
Normally, heaven or hell spotted the prophetic types and broadcast enough noises on the same mental channel to prevent any undue accuracy. Actually, that was really necessary. They normally found ways of generating their own static in self-defence against the images that echoed around their heads. Poor old St John had his mushrooms, for example. Mother Shipton had her ale. Nostradamus had his collection of interesting oriental preparations. St Malachi had his still. Good old Malachi. He'd been a nice old boy, sitting there dreaming about future popes. Complete piss artist, of course. Could have been a real thinker, if it hadn't been for the Pacine. A sad end. Sometimes you really had to hope that the ineffable plan had been properly thought out. Thought. There was something he had to do. Oh, yes. Phone his contact. Get things sorted out. He stood up, stretched his limbs, and made a phone call. Then he thought, why not? Worth a try. He went back and shuffled through his sheaf of notes. Agnes really had been good and clever. No one was interested in accurate prophecies. Paper in hand, he phoned directory inquiries. Hello. Good afternoon. So kind. Yes, this will be a Tadfield number, I think, or lower Tadfield. Ah, or possibly Norton. I'm not sure of the precise code. Yes, Young. Name of Young. Sorry, no initial. Oh, well... Can you give me all of them? Thank you. Back on the table, a pencil picked itself up and scribbled furiously. At the third name, it broke its point. Ah, said Aziraphale, his mouth suddenly running on automatic while his mind exploded. I think that's the one. Thank you. So kind. Good day to you. He hung up almost reverentially, took a few deep breaths, and dialed again. The last three digits gave him some trouble because his hand was shaking. He listened to the ringing tone. Then a voice answered. It was a middle-aged voice, not unfriendly, but probably it had been having a nap and was not feeling at its best. It said, Tadfield 666. Aziraphale's hand started to shake. Hello, said the receiver. Hello. Aziraphale got a grip on himself. "'Sorry,' he said. "'Right number.' He replaced the receiver. Newt wasn't deaf, and he did have his own scissors. He also had a huge pile of newspapers. If he had known that army life consisted chiefly of applying the one to the other, he used to muse, he would never have joined. Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell had made him a list which was taped to the wall in Shadwell's tiny, crowded flat, situated over Rajit's newsagents and video rental. The list read, 1. Witches, 2. Unexplainable Phenomenons, Phenomenatrices, Phenomenese, Things, ye ken well what I mean. Newt was looking for either. He sighed and picked up another newspaper, scanned the front page, opened it, ignored page two, never anything on there, then blushed crimson as he performed the obligatory nipple count on page three. Shadwell had been insistent about this. You can't trust them, the cunning buggers. 
he said. It'll be just like them to come right out in the open, like defying us. A couple in black turtleneck sweaters glowered at the camera on page nine. They claimed to lead the largest coven in Saffron Walden, and to restore sexual potency by the use of small and very phallic dolls. The newspaper was offering ten of the dolls to readers who were prepared to write my most embarrassing moment of impotency stories. Newt cut the story out and stuck it into a scrapbook. There was a muffled thumping on the door. Newt opened it. A pile of newspapers stood there. Shift yourself, private pulsifer, it barked, and it shuffled into the room. The newspapers fell to the floor, revealing Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell, who coughed painfully and relit his cigarette, which had gone out. You want to watch him? He's one of them, he said. Uh, who, sir? Tack your ease, private. Him, that little brown fella. Mr. So-called Rajit. It's them terrible foreign arts. The ruby-squinted eye of the little yellow god. Women with too many arms. Witches, the lot of them. He does give us the newspapers free, though, Sergeant, said Newt. And they're not too old. And voodoo. I bet he does voodoo. Sacrificing chickens to that barren Saturday. You know, tall darky bugger in the top hat. Brings people back from the dead, aye? And makes them work on the Sabbath day. Voodoo. Shadwell sniffed speculatively. Newt tried to picture Shadwell's landlord as an exponent of voodoo. Certainly Mr. Rajit worked on the Sabbath. In fact, with his plump, quiet wife and plump, cheerful children, he worked around the clock, never mind the calendar, diligently filling the area's needs in the matter of soft drinks, white bread, tobacco, sweets, newspapers, magazines, and the type of top-shelf pornography that made Newt's eyes water just to think about. The worst you could imagine Mr. Rajit doing with a chicken was selling it after the sell-by date. But Mr. Rajit's from Bangladesh or, or, or India or somewhere he said. I thought voodoo came from the West Indies. Ah, said Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell, and took another drag on his cigarette. Or appeared to. Newt had never actually quite seen one of his superior's cigarettes. It was something to do with the way he cupped his hands. He even made the ends disappear when he'd finished with them. Ah. Well, doesn't it? Hidden wisdom, lad. Inner military secrets of the Witchfinder army. When you're all initiated proper, you'll know the secret truth. Some voodoo may come from the West Indies, I'll grant you that. Oh, yes, I'll grant you that. But the worst kind, the darkest kind, that comes from, um, uh, Bangladesh. Ah, oh, yeah, yes, lad, that's it. Words right out of my mouth. Bangladesh, exactly. Shadwell made the end of his cigarette vanish and managed furtively to roll another, never letting papers or tobacco be seen. So, you got anything, Witchfinder Private? Well, there's this. Newton held out the clipping. Shadwell squinted at it. Oh, them, he said. Load of rubbish. Call themselves bloody witches. I checked them out last year. Went down with me armory of righteousness and a packet of firelighters. Jemmied the place open. They were clean as a whistle. Mail order bee jelly business they're trying to pep up. Load of rubbish. 
Wouldn't know a familiar spirit if it chewed out the bottoms of their trousers. Rubbish. It's not like it used to be, laddie. He sat down and poured himself a cup of sweet tea from a filthy thermos. Did I ever tell you how I was recruited to the army? he asked. Newt took this as his cue to sit down. He shook his head. Shadwell lit his roll-up with a battered Ronson lighter and coughed appreciatively. My cellmate, he was. Witchfinder Captain Folks. Ten years for arson. Burning a coven in Wimbledon. Would have got them all, too, if it wasn't the wrong day. A good fellow. Told me about the battle. The great war between heaven and hell. It was him that told me the inner secrets of the Witchfinder army. Familiar spirits, nipples, all that. Knew he was dying, you see. Got to have someone to carry on the tradition. Like you is now. He shook his head. That's what we'm reduced to, lad, he said. A few hundred years ago, see, we was powerful. We stood between the world and the darkness. We was the thin red line. Thin red line of fire, you see. I thought the churches... Newt began. Pa, said Shadwell. Newt had seen the word in print, but this was the first time he'd ever heard anyone say it. Churches? What good did they ever do? Them just as bad. Same line of business, nearly. You can't trust them to stamp out the evil one, because if they did, they'd be out of that line of business. If you're going up against a tiger, you don't want fellow travellers whose idea of hunting is to throw meat at it. Nay, lad, it's up to us against the darkness. Everything went quiet for a moment. Newt always tried to see the best in everyone, but it had occurred to him shortly after joining the W.A. that his superior and only fellow soldier was as well balanced as an upturned pyramid. Shortly, in this case, meant under five seconds. The W.A.'s headquarters was a fetid room with walls the colour of nicotine, which was almost certainly what they were coated with, and a floor the colour of cigarette ash, which was almost certainly what it was. There was a small square of carpet. Newt avoided walking on it, if possible, because it sucked at his shoes. One of the walls had a yellowing map of the British Isles tacked to it, with homemade flags sticking in it here and there. Most of them were within a cheap day return fare of London. But Newt had stuck with it the past few weeks because, well, horrified fascination had turned into horrified pity and then a sort of horrified affection. Shadwell had turned out to be about five feet high and wore clothes which, no matter what they actually were, always turned up, even in your short-term memory, as an old Macintosh. The old man may have had all his own teeth, but only because no one else could possibly have wanted them. Just one of them, placed under the pillow, would have made the tooth fairy hand in its wand. He appeared to live entirely on sweet tea, condensed milk, hand-rolled cigarettes, and a sort of sullen internal energy. Shadwell had a cause, which he followed with the full resources of his soul and his pensioner's concessionary travel pass. He believed in it. It powered him like a turbine. Newton Pulsifer had never had a cause in his life, nor had he, as far as he knew, ever believed in anything. 
It had been embarrassing because he quite wanted to believe in something, since he recognised that belief was the life belt that got most people through the choppy waters of life. He'd have liked to believe in a supreme god, although he'd have preferred a half-hour's chat with him before committing himself to clear up one or two points. He'd sat in all sorts of churches, waiting for that single flash of blue light, and it hadn't come. And then he'd tried to become an official atheist, and hadn't got the rock-hard, self-satisfied strength of belief even for that. And every single political party had seemed to him equally dishonest. And he'd given up on ecology when the ecology magazine he'd been subscribing to had shown its readers a plan of a self-sufficient garden and had drawn the ecological goat tethered within three feet of the ecological beehive. Newt had spent a lot of time at his grandmother's house in the country and thought he knew something about the habits of both goats and bees and concluded, therefore, that the magazine was run by a bunch of bib-overalled maniacs. Besides, it used the word community too often. Newt had always suspected that people who regularly used the word community were using it in a very specific sense that excluded him and everyone he knew. Then he'd tried believing in the universe, which seemed sound enough, until he'd innocently started reading new books with words like chaos and time and quantum in the titles. He'd found that even the people whose job of work was, so to speak, the universe, didn't really believe in it, and were actually quite proud of not knowing what it really was, or even if it could theoretically exist. To Newt's straightforward mind, this was intolerable. Newt had not believed in the Cub Scouts, and then, when he was old enough, not in the Scouts either. He was prepared to believe, though, that the job of wages clerk at United Holdings, Holdings, PLC, was possibly the most boring in the world. This is how Newton Pulsifer looked as a man. If he went into a phone booth and changed, he might manage to come out looking like Clark Kent. But he found he rather liked Shadwell. People often did, much to Shadwell's annoyance. The Rajits liked him because he always eventually paid his rent and didn't cause any trouble, and was racist in such a glowering, undirected way that it was quite inoffensive. It was simply that Shadwell hated everyone in the world, regardless of caste, colour or creed, and wasn't going to make any exceptions for anyone. Madame Tracy liked him. Newt had been amazed to find that the tenant of the other flat was a middle-aged motherly soul whose gentleman callers called as much for a cup of tea and a nice chat as for what little discipline she was still able to exact. Sometimes, when he'd nursed a half-pint of Guinness on a Saturday night, Shadwell would stand in the corridor between their rooms and shout things like, Hoor of Babylon!' But she told Newt privately that she'd always felt rather gratified about this, even though the closest she'd been to Babylon was Torremolinos. It was like free advertising, she said. She said she didn't mind him banging on the wall and swearing during her seance afternoons either. Her knees had been giving her jip, and she wasn't always up to operating the table wrapper, she said, so a bit of muffled thumping came in useful. 
On Sundays, she'd leave him a bit of dinner on his doorstep, with another plate over the top of it to keep it warm. You couldn't help liking Shadwell, she said. For all the good it did, though, she might as well be flicking bread pellets into a black hole. Newt remembered the other cuttings. He pushed them across the stained desk. What are these? said Shadwell suspiciously. Phenomena, said Newt. You said to look for phenomena. There's more phenomena than witches these days, I'm afraid. Anyone been shooting hares with a silver bullet and next day an old crone in the village is walking with a limp? Shadwell said, hopefully. I'm afraid not. Any cows dropping dead after some woman has looked at them? No. What is it, then? said Shadwell. He shuffled across to the sticky brown cupboard and pulled out a tin of condensed milk. Odd things happening, said Newt. He'd spent weeks on this. Shadwell had really let the papers pile up. Some of them went back for years. Newt had quite a good memory, perhaps because in his twenty-three years very little had happened to fill it up, and he'd become quite expert on some very esoteric subjects. Seems to be something new every day, said Newt, flicking through the rectangles of newsprint. Something weird has been happening to nuclear power stations, and no one seems to know what it is. And some people are claiming that the lost continent of Atlantis has risen. He looked proud of his efforts. Shadwell's penknife punctured the condensed milk tin. There was the distant sound of a telephone ringing. Both men instinctively ignored it. All the calls were for Madame Tracy anyway, and some of them were not intended for the ear of man. Newt had conscientiously answered the phone on his first day, listened carefully to the question, said, Marks and Spencer's 100% cotton Y-fronts, actually, and had been left with a dead receiver. Shadwell sucked deeply. Ah, that's no proper phenomena, he said. Can't see any witches doing that. They're more for sinking things, you can. Newt's mouth opened and shut a few times. If we're strong in the fight against witchery, we can't afford to be sidetracked by this style of thing, Shadwell went on. Haven't you got anything more witchcrafty? But American troops have landed on it to protect it from things, moaned Newt. A non-existent continent. Any witches on it, said Shadwell, showing a spark of interest for the first time. It doesn't say, said Newt. Ah, then, it's just politics and geography, said Shadwell dismissively. Madame Tracy poked her head around the door. Cooey, Mr. Shadwell, she said, giving Newt a friendly little wave. A gentleman on the telephone for you. Oh, hello, Mr. Newton. Away with ye, harlot, said Shadwell automatically. He sounds ever so refined, said Madame Tracy, taking no notice. And I'll be getting us a nice bit of liver for Sunday. I'd sooner sup with a devil woman. So if you'd let me have the plates back from last week, it'd be a help. There's love, said Madame Tracy, and tottered unsteadily back on three-inch heels to her flat and whatever it was that had been interrupted. Newt looked despondently at his cuttings as Shadwell went out grumbling to the phone. There was one about the stones of Stonehenge moving out of position, as though they were iron filings in a magnetic field. He was vaguely aware of one side of a telephone conversation. Who? Ah, I. 
Aye, I see. What class of thing would that be? Aye, just as you say, sir. And where is this place, then? But mysteriously moving stones wasn't Shadwell's cup of tea, or rather, tin of milk. Oh, fine, fine, Shadwell reassured the caller. We'll get on to it right away. I'll put my best squad on it and report success to you any minute, I have no doubt. Goodbye to you, sir. And bless you too, sir. There was the ting of a receiver going back on the hook, and then Shadwell's voice, no longer metaphorically crouched in deference, said, Dear boy, you great southern pansy. Footnote. Shadwell hated all southerners, and, by inference, was standing at the North Pole. He shuffled back into the room, and then stared at Newt as if he'd forgotten why he was there. Uh, what was it he was going on about? he said. All these things that are happening, Newt began. Aye. Shadwell continued to look through him while thoughtfully tapping the empty tin against his teeth. Well, there's this little town which has been having some amazing weather for the last few years, Newt went on helplessly. What? Raining frogs and similar? said Shadwell, brightening up a bit. No, it just has normal weather for the time of year. You call that a phenomena? said Shadwell. I've seen phenomenas that emit your hair colour, dear. He started tapping again. When do you remember normal weather for the time of year? said Newt, slightly annoyed. Normal weather for the time of year isn't normal, Sergeant. It has snow at Christmas. When did you last see snow at Christmas? And long, hot Augusts? Every year? And crisp autumns? The kind of weather you used to dream of as a kid. It never rained on November the 5th and always snowed on Christmas Eve. Shadwell's eyes looked unfocused. He paused with the condensed milk tin halfway to his lips. I never used to dream when I was a kid, he said quietly. Newt was aware of skidding around the lip of some deep, unpleasant pit. He mentally backed away. It's just very odd he said. There's a weatherman here talking about averages and norms and microclimates and things like that. What's that mean? said Shadwell. Means he doesn't know why, said Newt, who hadn't spent years on the literal of business without picking up a thing or two. He looked sidelong at the witchfinder sergeant. Witches are well known for affecting the weather, he prompted. I looked it up in the discovery. Oh, God, he thought, or other suitable entity. Don't let me spend another evening cutting newspapers to bits in this ashtray of a room. Let me get out in the fresh air. Let me do whatever is the W.A.'s equivalent of going water skiing in Germany. It's only 40 miles away, he said tentatively. I thought I could just sort of nip over there tomorrow and have a look around, you know. I'll pay my own petrol, he added. Shadwell wiped his upper lip thoughtfully. This place, he said, it wouldn't have been called Tadfield, would it? That's right, Mr. Shadwell, said Newt. How did you know that? Wonder what the Southerners is playing at now, said Shadwell, under his breath. Well, he said out loud, and why not? Uh, who'll be playing, Sergeant? said Newt. Shadwell ignored him. I... I suppose it can't do any harm, 
You'll pay your own petrol, you say? Newt nodded. Then you'll come here at nine o'clock in the morning, he said. Afore you go. What for? said Newt. Your armour of righteousness. Just after Newt had left, the phone rang again. This time it was Crowley who gave approximately the same instructions as Aziraphale. Shadwell took them down again, for form's sake, while Madame Tracy hovered delightedly behind him. Two calls in one day, Mr. Shadwell, she said. Your little army must be marching away like anything. Ah, away with you, you marin plashed Berezini, muttered Shadwell, and slammed the door. Tadfield, he thought. Ah, well, so long as they paid up on time. Neither Aziraphale or Crowley ran the Witchfinder army, but they both approved of it, or at least knew that it would be approved of by their superiors. So it appeared on the list of Aziraphale's agencies, because it was, well, a Witchfinder army, and you had to support anyone calling themselves Witchfinders, in the same way that the USA had to support anyone calling themselves anti-communist. And it appeared on Crowley's list for the slightly more sophisticated reason that people like Shadwell did the cause of hell no harm at all. Quite the reverse, it was felt. Strictly speaking, Shadwell didn't run the WA either. According to Shadwell's pay ledgers, it was run by Witchfinder General Smith. Under him were Witchfinder Colonels Green and Jones and Witchfinder Majors Jackson, Robinson and Smith. No relation. Then there were Witchfinder Majors Saucepan, Tin, Milk, and Cupboard, because Shadwell's limited imagination had been beginning to struggle at this point. And Witchfinder Captains Smith, 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 and Smythe, and Ditto, and five hundred Witchfinder Privates and Corporals and Sergeants. Many of them were called Smith, but this didn't matter because neither Crowley nor Aziraphale had ever bothered to read that far. They simply handed over the pay. After all, both lots put together only came to around £60 a year. Shadwell didn't consider this in any way criminal. The army was a sacred trust, and a man had to do something. The old ninepences weren't coming in like they used to. Saturday. It was very early on Saturday morning, on the last day of the world, and the sky was redder than blood. The International Express delivery man rounded the corner at a careful 35 miles an hour, shifted down to second, and pulled up on the grass verge. He got out of the van and immediately threw himself into a ditch to avoid an oncoming lorry that had barreled around the bend at something well in excess of 80 miles an hour. He got up, picked up his glasses, put them back on, retrieved his parcel and clipboard, brushed the grass and mud from his uniform, 
and, as an afterthought, shook his fist at the rapidly diminishing lorry. Shouldn't be allowed, bloody lorries. No respect for other road users, what I always say. What I always say is, remember that without a car, son, you're just a pedestrian too. He climbed down the grassy verge, clambered over a low fence, and found himself beside the river Uck. The International Express delivery man walked along the banks of the river, holding the parcel. Farther down the river bank sat a young man dressed all in white. He was the only person in sight. His hair was white, his skin chalk pale, and he sat and stared up and down the river as if he were admiring the view. He looked like how Victorian romantic poets looked just before the consumption and drug abuse really started to cut it. The International Express man couldn't understand it. I mean, in the old days, and it wasn't that long ago, really, there'd been an angler every dozen yards along the bank. Children had played there. Courting couples had come to listen to the splish and gurgle of the river and to hold hands and to get all lovey-dovey in the Sussex sunset. He'd done that with Maud, his missus, before they were married. They'd come here to spoon and, on one memorable occasion, fork. Times changed, reflected the delivery man. Now, white and brown sculptures of foam and sludge drifted serenely down the river, often covering it for yards at a stretch. And where the surface of the water was visible, it was covered with a molecule-thin petrochemical sheen. There was a loud whirring as a couple of geese, thankful to be back in England again after the long, exhausting flight across the northern Atlantic, landed on the rainbow-slicked water and sank without trace. Funny old world, thought the delivery man. Here's the Uck, used to be the prettiest river in this part of the world, and now it's just a glorified industrial sewer. The swans sink to the bottom, and the fishes float on the top. Well, that's progress for you. You can't stop progress. He had reached the man in white. Excuse me, sir, party name of Chalky? The man in white nodded, said nothing. He continued to gaze out at the river, following an impressive sludge and foam sculpture with his eyes. So beautiful, he whispered. It's all so damn beautiful. The delivery man found himself temporarily devoid of words. Then his automatic systems cut in. Funny old world, isn't it? And no mistake. I mean, you go all over the world delivering, and then here you are practically in your own home, so to speak. I mean, I was born and bred round here, sir. And I've been to the Mediterranean and to Deso Moines, and that's in America, sir. And now here I am, and here's your parcel, sir. Party name of Chalky took the parcel and took the clipboard and signed for the parcel. The pen developed a leak as he did so, and his signature obliterated itself as it was written. It was a long word, and it began with a P, and then there was a splodge, and then it ended in something that might have been Ents, and might have been Yushin. Much obliged, sir, said the delivery man. He walked back along the river, back toward the busy road where he had left his van, trying not to look at the river as he went. Behind him, the man in white opened the parcel. In it was a crown, a circlet of white metal set with diamonds. 
He gazed at it for some seconds with satisfaction, then put it on. It glinted in the light of the rising sun. Then the tarnish, which had begun to suffuse its silver surface when his fingers touched it, spread to cover it completely, and the crown went black. White stood up. There's one thing you can say for air pollution. You get utterly amazing sunrises. It looked like someone had set fire to the sky, and a careless match would have set fire to the river. But, alas, there was no time for that now. In his mind, he knew where the four of them would be meeting, and when, and he was going to have to hurry to be there by this afternoon. Perhaps we will set fire to the sky, he thought, and he left that place almost imperceptibly. It was nearly time. The delivery man had left his van on the grass verge by the dual carriageway. He walked around to the driver's side carefully, because other cars and lorries were still rocketing around the bend. Reached in through the open window, and took the schedule from the dashboard. Only one more delivery to make then. He read the instructions on the delivery voucher carefully. He read them again, paying particular attention to the address and the message. The address was one word, everywhere. Then, with his leaking pen, he wrote a brief note to Maud, his wife. It read simply, "I love you." Then he put the schedule back on the dashboard, looked left, looked right, looked left again, and began to walk purposefully across the road. He was halfway across when a German juggernaut came around the corner. Its driver crazed on caffeine, little white pills, and EEC transport regulations. He watched its receding bulk. Cor, he thought, that one nearly had me. Then he looked down at the gutter. Oh, he thought. Yes. Agreed a voice from behind his left shoulder, or at least from behind the memory of his left shoulder. The delivery man turned and looked, and saw. At first he couldn't find the words, couldn't find anything, and then the habits of a working lifetime took over, and he said, "Message for you, sir." For me? Yes, sir. He wished he still had a throat. He could have swallowed if he still had a throat. No package, I'm afraid, Mister. Er,、uh, sir, it's a message. Deliver it then. It's this, sir. Er,、uh, him. Come and see. Finally, there was a grin on its face. But then, given the face, there couldn't have been anything else. Thank you. It continued. I must commend your devotion to duty, sir. The late delivery man was falling through a grey mist, and all he could see were two spots of blue that might have been eyes, and might have been distant stars. Don't think of it as dying," said Death. "Just think of it as leaving early, to avoid the rush." The delivery man had a brief moment to wonder whether his new companion was making a joke, and to decide that he wasn't. And then there was nothing. Red sky in the morning. It was going to rain. Yes.
which Finder Sergeant Shadwell stood back with his head on one side. Right then, he said. Y'all ready? Have you got it all? Yes, sir. Pendulum of discovery? Pendulum of discovery, yes. Thumbscrew? Newt swallowed and patted a pocket. Thumbscrew, he said. Fire lighters. I, I really think, Sergeant, that fire lighters. Fire lighters, said Newt, sadly. And matches. Footnote. Note for Americans and other city-dwelling life forms. The rural British, having eschewed central heating as being far too complicated and, in any case, weakening moral fibre, prefer a system of piling small pieces of wood and lumps of coal topped by large wet logs, possibly made of asbestos, into small smouldering heaps, known as, there's nothing like a roaring open fire, is there? Since none of these ingredients are naturally inclined to burn, Underneath all this, they apply a small rectangular waxy white lump, which burns cheerfully until the weight of the fire puts it out. These little white blocks are called fire lighters. No one knows why. Bell, book and candle? Newt patted another pocket. It contained a paper bag, inside which was a small bell of the sort that maddens budgerigars, a pink candle of the birthday cake persuasion, and a tiny book called Prayers for Little Hands. Shadwell had impressed upon him that although witches were the primary target, a good witch-finder should never pass up the chance to do a quick exorcism, and should have his field kit with him at all times. Bell, book and candle, said Newt. Pin? Pin. Good lad, never forget your pin. It's the bayonet in your artillery of light. Shadwell stood back. Newt noticed with amazement that the old man's eyes had misted over. "'I wish I was going with ye,' he said. "'Of course, this won't be anything, but it'd be good to get out and about again. "'It's a trying life, ye can, all this lying in the wet bracken, spying on their devilish dancing. "'It gets into your bones something cruel.' He straightened up and saluted. Off you go then, Private Pulsifer. May the armies of glorification march with ye. After Newt had driven off, Shadwell thought of something, something that he'd never had the chance to do before. What he needed now was a pin. Not a military-issue pin, which is for the use of, just an ordinary pin, such as you might stick in a map. The map was on the wall. It was old. It didn't show Milton Keynes. It didn't show Harlow. It barely showed Manchester and Birmingham. It had been the Army's HQ map for 300 years. There were a few pins in it still, mainly in Yorkshire and Lancashire, and a few in Essex, but they were almost rusted through. Elsewhere, mere brown stubs indicated the distant mission of a long-ago witch-finder. Shadwell finally found a pin among the debris in an ashtray. He breathed on it, polished it to a shine, squinted at the map until he located Tadfield, and triumphantly rammed the pin home. It gleamed. Shadwell took a step backward and saluted again. There were tears in his eyes. Then he did a smart-about turn and saluted the display cabinet, 
It was old and battered, and the glass was broken, but in a way it was the W.A. It contained the regimental silver, the inter-battalion golf trophy, not competed for, alas, in seventy years. It contained the patent muzzle-loading thunder gun, which find a colonel, ye shall not eat any living thing with the blood, neither shall ye use enchantment, nor observe times, Dalrymple. It contained a display of what were apparently walnuts, but were, in reality, a collection of shrunken headhunter heads, donated by witchfinder CSM Horace, get them before they get you, Narka, who travelled widely in foreign parts. It contained memories. Shadwell blew his nose noisily on his sleeve. Then he opened a tin of condensed milk for breakfast. If the armies of glorification had tried to march with Newt, bits of them would have dropped off. This is because, apart from Newt and Shadwell, they had been dead for quite a long time. It was a mistake to think of Shadwell, Newt never found out if he had a first name, as a lone nut. It was just that all the others were dead, in most cases, for several hundred years. Once, the army had been as big as it currently appeared in Shadwell's creatively edited bookkeeping. Newt had been surprised to find that the Witchfinder army had antecedents as long and almost as bloody as its more mundane counterpart. The rates of pay for Witchfinders had last been set by Oliver Cromwell and never reviewed. Officers got a crown and the general got a sovereign. It was just an honorarium, of course, because you got ninepence per witch found and first pick of their property. You really got to rely on those ninepences. And so times had been a bit hard before Shadwell had gone on the payrolls of heaven and hell. Newt's pay was one old shilling per year. Footnote. Note for young people and Americans. One shilling equals five p. It helps to understand the antique finances of the Witchfinder Army if you know the original British monetary system. Two farthings equals one halfpenny. Two halfpennies equals one penny. Three pennies equals a threepenny bit. Two threepences equals a sixpence. Two sixpences equals one shilling or bob. Two bob equals a florin. One florin and one sixpence equals half a crown. Four half crowns equals ten bob note. Two ten bob notes equals one pound or two hundred and forty pennies. One pound and one shilling equals one guinea. The British resisted decimalized currency for a long time because they thought it was too complicated. In return for this, he was charged to keep glimmer, firelock, firebox, tinderbox, or igniferous matches about his person at all times, although Shadwell indicated that a Ronson gaslighter would do very well. Shadwell had accepted the invention of the patent cigarette lighter in the same way that conventional soldiers welcomed the repeating rifle. The way Newt looked at it, it was like being in one of those organizations like the Sealed Knot, or those people who kept on refighting the American Civil War. It got you out at weekends and meant that you were keeping alive fine old traditions that had made Western civilization what it was today. An hour after leaving the headquarters, Newt pulled into a lay-by 
and rummaged in the box on the passenger seat. Then he opened the car window, using a pair of pliers for the purpose, since the handle had long since fallen off. The packet of firelighters was sent winging over the hedge. A moment later, the thumbscrew followed it. He debated about the rest of the stuff, and then put it back in the box. The pin was Witchfinder Military Issue, with a good ebony knob on the end, like a lady's hat pin. He knew what it was for. He'd done quite a lot of reading. Shadwell had piled him up with pamphlets at their first meeting, but the army had also accumulated various books and documents which, Newt suspected, would be worth a fortune if they ever hit the market. The pin was to jab into suspects. If there was a spot on their body where they didn't feel anything, they were a witch. Simple. Some of the fraudulent witch-finders had used special retracting pins, but this one was honest, solid steel. He wouldn't be able to look old Shadwell in the face if he threw away the pin. Besides, it was probably bad luck. He started the engine and resumed his journey. Newt's car was a wasabi. He called it Dick Turpin in the hope that one day someone would ask him why. It would be a very accurate historian who could pinpoint the precise day when the Japanese changed from being fiendish automatons who copied everything from the West to becoming skilled and cunning engineers who would leave the West standing. But the wasabi had been designed on that one confused day and combined the traditional bad points of most Western cars with a host of innovative disasters, the avoidance of which had made firms like Honda and Toyota what they were today. Newt had never actually seen another one on the road, despite his best efforts. For years, and without much conviction, he'd enthused to his friends about its economy and efficiency, in the desperate hope that one of them might buy one, because misery loves company. In vain did he point out its 823cc engine, its three-speed gearbox, its incredible safety devices, like the balloons which inflated on dangerous occasions, such as when you were doing 45 miles per hour on a straight, dry road, but were about to crash because a huge safety balloon had just obscured the view. He'd also wax slightly lyrical about the Korean-made radio, which picked up Radio Pyongyang incredibly well, and the simulated electronic voice, which warned you about not wearing a seatbelt, even when you were. It had been programmed by someone who not only didn't understand English, but didn't understand Japanese either. It was state-of-the-art, he said. The art, in this case, was probably pottery. His friends nodded and agreed, and privately decided that if ever it came to buying a wasabi or walking, they'd invest in a pair of shoes. It came to the same thing anyway, since one reason for the wasabi's incredible MPG was that fact that it spent a lot of time waiting in garages while crankshafts and things were in the post from the world's only surviving wasabi agent in Nigirizushi, Japan. In that vague, zen-like trance in which most people drive, Newt found himself wondering exactly how you used the pin. Did you say, I've got a pin and I'm not afraid to use it? Have pin will travel? The pin-slinger? The man with the golden pin? The pins of Navarone? 
It might have interested Newt to know that of the 39,000 women tested with the pin during the centuries of witch hunting, 29,000 said, ouch. 9,999 didn't feel anything because of the use of the aforesaid retractable pins, and one witch declared that it had miraculously cleared up the arthritis in her leg. Her name was Agnes Nutter. She was the Witchfinder Army's great failure. One of the early entries in the nice and accurate prophecies concerned Agnes Nutter's own death. The English, by and large, being a crass and indolent race, were not as keen on burning women as other countries in Europe. In Germany, the bonfires were built and burned with regular Teutonic thoroughness. Even the pious Scots, locked throughout history in a long-drawn-out battle with their arch-enemies, the Scots, managed a few burnings to while away the long winter evenings. But the English never seemed to have the heart for it. One reason for this may have to do with the manner of Agnes Nutter's death, which more or less marked the end of the serious witch-hunting craze in England. A howling mob, reduced to utter fury by her habit of going around being intelligent and curing people, arrived at her house one April evening to find her sitting with her coat on, waiting for them. Ye tardy, she said to them. I should have been aflame ten minutes since. Then she got up and hobbled slowly through the suddenly silent crowd out of the cottage and to the bonfire that had been hastily thrown together on the village green. Legend says that she climbed awkwardly onto the pyre and thrust her arms around the stake behind her. Tie it well, she said to the astonished witchfinder. And then, as the villagers sidled toward the pyre, she raised her handsome head in the firelight and said, Gather ye right close, good people. Come close until the fire near scorch ye, for I charge ye that all must see how the last true witch in England dies. For which I am, for so I am judged, yet I know not what my true crime may be. And therefore, let mine death be a message to the world. Gather ye right close, I say, and mark well the fate of all who meddle with such as they do not understand. And apparently she smiled and looked up at the sky over the village and added, That goes for you as well, you daft old fool. And after that strange blasphemy, she said no more. She let them gag her and stood imperiously as the torches were put to the dry wood. The crowd grew nearer, one or two of its members a little uncertain as to whether they'd done the right thing, now they came to think about it. Thirty seconds later, an explosion took out the village green, scythed the valley clean of every living thing, and was seen as far away as Halifax. There was much subsequent debate as to whether this had been sent by God or by Satan, but a note later found in Agnes Nutter's cottage indicated that any divine or devilish intervention had been materially helped by the contents of Agnes's petticoats, wherein she had, with some foresight, concealed eighty pounds of gunpowder, 
and forty pounds of roofing nails. What Agnes also left behind on the kitchen table, beside a note cancelling the milk, was a box and a book. There were specific instructions as to what should be done with the box, and equally specific instructions about what should be done with the book. It was to be sent to Agnes's son, John Device. The people who found it, who were from the next village and had been woken up by the explosion, considered ignoring the instructions and just burning the cottage, and then looked around at the twinkling fires and nail-studded wreckage, and decided not to. Besides, Agnes's note included painfully precise predictions about what would happen to people who did not carry out her orders. The man who put the torch to Agnes Nutter was a witchfinder major. They found his hat in a tree two miles away. His name, stitched inside on a fairly large piece of tape, was "Thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer." One of England's most assiduous witchfinders, and it might have afforded him some satisfaction to know that his last surviving descendant was now, even if unawares, heading toward Agnes Nutter's last surviving descendant. He might have felt that some ancient revenge was at last going to be discharged, if he'd known what was actually going to happen when that descendant met her. He would have turned in his grave. Except that he had never got one. Firstly, however, Newt had to do something about the flying saucer. It landed in the road ahead of him, just as he was trying to find the lower Tadfield turning, and had the map spread over the steering wheel. He had to brake hard. It looked like every cartoon of a flying saucer Newt had ever seen. As he stared over the top of his map. A door in the saucer slid aside with a satisfying whoosh, revealing a gleaming walkway which extended automatically down to the road. Brilliant blue light shone out, outlining three alien shapes. They walked down the ramp. At least two of them walked. The one that looked like a pepper pot just skidded down it and fell over at the bottom. The other two ignored its frantic beeping and walked over to the car quite slowly. In the worldwide approved manner of policemen already compiling the charge sheet in their heads, the tallest one, a yellow toad dressed in kitchen foil, rapped on Newt's window. He wound it down. The thing was wearing the kind of mirror-finished sunglasses that Newt always thought of as Cool Hand Luke shades. Morning, sir, or madam, or Newtar, the thing said. This your planet, is it? The other alien, which was stubby and green, had wandered off into the woods by the side of the road. Out of the corner of his eye, Newt saw it kick a tree and then run a leaf through some complicated gadget on its belt. It didn't look very pleased. Well, yes, I, I suppose so," he said. The toad stared thoughtfully at the skyline. "Had it long, have we, sir?" it said. Uh, not personally. I mean, as a species, about half a million years, I think. The alien exchanged glances with its colleague. Been letting the old acid rain build up, haven't we, sir? It said. Been letting ourselves go a bit with the old hydrocarbons, perhaps. I I'm sorry. Could you tell me your planet's 
Albedo, sir, said the toad, still staring levelly at the horizon as though it was doing something interesting. Er, uh, no. Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you, sir, that your polar ice caps are below regulation size for a planet of this category, sir. Oh, dear, said Newt. He was wondering who he could tell about this, and realising that there was absolutely no one who would believe him. The toad bent closer. It seemed to be worried about something, insofar as Newt was any judge of the expressions of an alien race he'd never encountered before. We'll overlook it on this occasion, sir. Newt gabbled. Oh, um, I'll see to it. Well, when I say I, I mean I think Antarctica or something belongs to every country or something. And the fact is, sir, that we have been asked to give you a message. Oh? Message runs. We give you a message of universal peace and cosmic harmony and such like. Message ends, said the toad. Oh, Newt turned this over in his mind. Oh, uh, well, that's very kind. Have you got any idea why we have been asked to bring you this message, sir? Said the toad. Newt brightened. Uh, well, um, I, I suppose, he flailed, uh, what with mankind's um, harnessing of the atom, and uh, neither have we, sir. The toad stood up. One of them phenomena, I expect. Well, we'd better be going. Um... It shook its head vaguely, turned around, and waddled back to the saucer without another word. Newt stuck his head out of the window. Thank you. The small alien walked past the car. CO2 level up 0.5 percent, it rasped, giving him a meaningful look. You do know you can find yourself charged with being a dominant species while under the influence of impulse-driven consumerism, don't you? The two of them righted the third alien, dragged it back up the ramp, and shut the door. Newt waited for a while in case there were any spectacular light displays, but it just stood there. Eventually, he drove up on the verge and around it. When he looked in his rearview mirror, it had gone. I must be overdoing something, he thought guiltily. But what? And I can't even tell Shadwell, because he'd probably bore me out for not counting their nipples. Anyway, said Adam, you've got it all wrong about witches. The them were sitting on a field gate, watching Dog rolling in cowpats. The little mongrel seemed to be enjoying himself immensely. I've been reading about them he said in a slightly louder voice. Actually, they've been right all along, and it's wrong to persecute them with British inquisitions and stuff. My mother said they were just intelligent women, protesting in the only way open to them against the stifling injustices of a male-dominated social hierarchy, said Pepper. Pepper's mother lectured at Northern Polytechnic. Footnote, during the day. In the evenings, she gave power tarot readings to nervous executives because old habits die hard. Yes, but your mother's always saying things like that, said Adam, after a while. Pepper nodded amiably, and she said, at worst, they were just free-thinking worshippers of the progenerative principle. Who's the progeneratty principle? said Wensleydale. Dunno, something to do with maypoles, I think, said Pepper, vaguely. 
Well, I thought they worshipped the devil, said Brian, but without automatic condemnation. The them had an open mind on the whole subject of devil worship. The them had an open mind about everything. Anyway, the devil would be better than a stupid maypole. Now, that's where you're wrong, said Adam. It's not the devil. It's another god, or, or, or something. With horns. The devil, said Brian. No, said Adam, patiently. People just got him mixed up. He's just got horns similar. He's called Pan. He's half a goat. Which half? said Wensleydale. Adam thought about it. The bottom half, he said at length. Fancy you not knowing that. I should have thought everyone knew that. Well, goats haven't got a bottom half, said Wensleydale. They've got a front half and a back half, just like cows. They watched dogs some more, drumming their heels on the gate. It was too hot to think. Then Pepper said, If he's got goat legs, he shouldn't have horns. They belong to the front half. I didn't make him up, did I? said Adam, aggrieved. I was just telling you. Well, it's news to me I made him up. No one need go on at me. Anyway, said Pepper, this stupid pot can't go around complaining if people think he's the devil, not with having horns on. People are bound to say, oh, here comes the devil. Dog started to dig up a rabbit hole. Adam, who seemed to have a weight on his mind, took a deep breath. You don't have to be so literal about everything, he said. That's the trouble these days. Grass materialism. It's people like you who go around chopping down rainforests and making holes in the ozone layer. There's a great big hole in the ozone layer because of grass materialism, people like you. I can't do anything about it, said Brian automatically. I'm still paying off on a stupid cucumber frame. It's in the magazine, said Adam. It takes millions of acres of rainforest to make one beef burger. And all this ozone is leaking away because of, um... He hesitated. Um, people spraying the environment. And there's whales, said Winsleydale. We've got to save them. Adam looked blank. His plunder of new Aquarians' back issues hadn't included anything about whales. Its editors had assumed that the readers were all for saving whales, in the same way they assumed that those readers breathed and walked upright. Yeah, there was this programme about them, explained Wensleydale. What we got to save them for, said Adam. He had confused visions of saving up whales until you had enough for a badge. Wensleydale paused and racked his memory. Because they can sing, and they've got big brains. There's hardly any of them left, and we don't need to kill them anyway, because they only make pet food and stuff. If they're so clever, said Brian, slowly, what are they doing in the sea? Oh, I, I don't know, said Adam, looking thoughtful. Swimming around all day, just opening their mouths and eating stuff? Sounds pretty clever to me. A squeal of brakes and a long-drawn-out crunch interrupted him. They scrambled off the gate and ran up the lane to the crossroads, where a small car lay on its roof at the end of a long skid mark. A little further down the road was a hole. It looked as though the car had tried to avoid it. As they looked at it, a small oriental-looking head darted out of sight. The them dragged the door open and pulled out the unconscious newt. Visions of medals for heroic rescue thronged Adam's head. Practical considerations of first aid thronged around that of Wensleydale. 
We shouldn't move him, he said. Because of broken bones, we, we ought to get someone. Adam cast around. There was a rooftop just visible in the trees down the road. It was Jasmine Cottage. And in Jasmine Cottage, Anathema Device was sitting in front of a table on which some bandages, aspirins, and assorted first aid items had been laid out for the past hour. Anathema had been looking at the clock. He'll be coming around any moment now, she'd thought. And then, when he got there, he wasn't what she'd been expecting. More precisely, he wasn't what she'd been hoping for. She'd been hoping, rather self-consciously, for someone tall, dark and handsome. Newt was tall, but with a rolled-out, thin look. And while his hair was undoubtedly dark, it wasn't any sort of fashion accessory. It was just a lot of thin black strands all growing together out of the top of his head. This was not Newt's fault. In his younger days, he would go every couple of months to the barber shop on the corner, clutching a photograph he'd carefully torn from a magazine, which showed someone with an impressively cool haircut grinning at the camera. And he would show the picture to the barber and ask to be made to look like that, please. And the barber, who knew his job, would take one look and then give Newt the basic all-purpose short back and sides. After a year of this, Newt realised that he obviously didn't have the face that went with haircuts. The best Newton Pulsifer could hope for after a haircut was shorter hair. It was the same with suits. The clothing hadn't been invented that would make him look suave and sophisticated and comfortable. These days he had learned to be satisfied with anything that would keep the rain off and give him somewhere to keep his change. And he wasn't handsome, not even when he took off his glasses. Footnote. Actually, less so when he took off his glasses, because then he tripped over things and wore bandages a lot. And, she discovered when she took off his shoes to lay him on her bed, he wore odd socks, one blue one with a hole in the heel and one grey one with holes around the toes. I suppose I meant to feel a wave of warm, tender female something or other about this, she thought. I just wish he'd wash them. So, tall, dark, but not handsome. She shrugged. OK, two out of three isn't bad. The figure on the bed began to stare, and Anathema, who in the very nature of things always looked to the future, suppressed her disappointment and said, How are we feeling now? Newt opened his eyes. He was lying in a bedroom, and it wasn't his. He knew this instantly because of the ceiling. His bedroom ceiling still had the model aircraft hanging from bits of cotton. He'd never got around to taking them down. This ceiling just had cracked plaster. Newt had never been in a woman's bedroom before, but he sensed that this was one largely by a combination of soft smells. There was a hint of talcum and lily of the valley, and no rank suggestion of old T-shirts that had forgotten what the inside of a tumble dryer looked like. He tried to lift his head up, groaned, and let it sink back onto the pillow. Pink, he couldn't help noticing. You banged your head on the steering wheel, said the voice that had roused him. Nothing broken, though. What happened? Newt opened his eyes again. Car, all right, he said. Apparently, a little voice inside it keeps repeating, 
Prees to frost and sleet, Bert. See, said Newt to an invisible audience, they knew how to build them in those days. That plastic finish hardly takes a dent. He blinked at anathema. I swerved to avoid a Tibetan in the road, he said. At least, I think I did. I think I've probably gone mad. The figure walked around into his line of sight. It had dark hair and red lips and green eyes, and it was almost certainly female. Newt tried not to stare. It said, If you have, no one's going to notice. Then she smiled. Do you know, I've never met a witchfinder before. Um, Newt began. She held up his open wallet. I had to look inside, she said. Newt felt extremely embarrassed, a not unusual state of affairs. Shadwell had given him an official witchfinder's warrant card, which, among other things, charged all beadles, magistrates, bishops and bailiffs to give him free passage and as much dry kindling as he required. It was incredibly impressive, a masterpiece of calligraphy, and probably quite old. He'd forgotten about it. It's really just a hobby, he said wretchedly. I'm really, um, uh, uh, he wasn't going to say wages, Clark. Not here, not now, not to a girl like this. Uh, um, a computer engineer, he lied. Want to be? Want to be? In my heart, I'm a computer engineer. It's only the brain that's letting me down. Uh, excuse me, uh, could I know, um, anathema device, said anathema. I'm an occultist, but that's just a hobby. I'm really a witch. Well done. <laughs> You're half an hour late, she added, handing him a small sheet of cardboard, so you'd better read this. It'll save a lot of time. Newt did, in fact, own a small home computer, despite his boyhood experiences. In fact, he'd owned several. You always knew which ones he owned. They were desktop equivalents of the wasabi. They were the ones which, for example, dropped to half price just after he'd bought them, or were launched in a blaze of publicity and disappeared into obscurity within a year, or only worked at all if you stuck them in a fridge, or if by some fluke they were basically good machines, Newt always got the few that were sold with the early bug-infested version of the operating system. But he persevered because he believed. Adam also had a small computer, he used it for playing games, but never for very long. He'd load a game, watch it intently for a few minutes, and then proceed to play it until the high-score counter ran out of zeros. When the other, them, wondered about this strange skill, Adam professed mild amazement that everyone didn't play games like this. All you have to do is learn how to play it, and then it's just easy, he said. Quite a lot of the front parlour in Jasmine Cottage was taken up, Newt noticed, with a sinking feeling, with piles of newspapers. Clippings were stuck around the walls. Some of them had bits circled in red ink. He was mildly gratified to spot several he had cut out for Shadwell. Anathema owned very little in the way of furniture. The only thing she'd bothered to bring with her had been her clock, one of the family heirlooms. It wasn't a full-cased grandfather clock, but a wall clock with a free-swinging pendulum that E.A. Poe would cheerfully have strapped someone under. Newt kept finding his eye drawn to it. 
It was built by an ancestor of mine, said Anathema, putting the coffee cups down on the table. Sir Joshua Device. You may have heard of him. He invented the little rocking thing that made it possible to build accurate clocks cheaply. They named it after him. The Joshua, said Newt, guardedly. The Device. In the last half hour, Newt had heard some pretty unbelievable stuff and was close to believing it, but you had to draw the line somewhere. The device is named after a real person, he said. Oh, yes, fine old Lancashire name. From the French, I believe. You'll be telling me next you've never heard of Sir Humphrey Gadget. Oh, now, come on. Who devised a gadget that made it possible to pump out flooded mine shafts? Or Pietra Gizmo? Or Cyrus T. Doodad, America's foremost black inventor? Thomas Edison said that the only other contemporary practical scientists he admired were Cyrus T. Doodad and Ella Rita Widget. And she looked at Newt's blank expression. I did my PhD on them, she said. The people who invented things so simple and universally useful that everyone forgot they'd ever actually needed to be invented. Sugar? Uh... You normally have two, said Anathema sweetly. Newt stared back at the card she'd handed him. She'd seemed to think it would explain everything. It didn't. It had a ruled line down the middle. On the left-hand side was a short piece of what seemed to be poetry in black ink. On the right-hand side, in red ink this time, were comments and annotations. The effect was... As follows. 3819. When Orient's chariot inverted be, four wheels in the sky, a man with bruises be upon your bed, aching his head for willow fine, a man who testeth with a pin, yet his heart be clean, yet seed of mine own undoing. Take the means of flame from him, for to make right certain, together ye shall be until the end that is to come. And the notes. Japanese car, upturned. Car smash, not serious injury. Take in. Willow fine equals aspirin, CF3757. Pin equals Witchfinder, CF-102. Good Witchfinder refers to Pulsifer, CF-002. Search for matches, etc. In the 1990s. Hmm. Less than a day. CF-712-3803-4004. Newt's hand went automatically to his pocket. His cigarette lighter had gone. What's this mean? he said hoarsely. Have you ever heard of Agnes Nutter? said Anathema. No, said Newt, taking a desperate defence in sarcasm. You're going to tell me she invented mad people, I suppose. Another fine old Lancashire name, said Anathema coldly. If you don't believe, read up on the witch trials of the early 17th century. She was an ancestress of mine. As a matter of fact, one of your ancestors burned her alive, or tried to. 
Newt listened in fascinated horror to the story of Agnes Nutter's death. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer, he said when she'd finished. Oh, that sort of name was quite common in those days, said Anathema. Apparently there were ten children, and they were a very religious family. There was covetousness, Pulsifer, false witness, Pulsifer. I think I understand, said Newt. Gosh, I thought Shadwell said he'd heard the name before. It must be in the army records. I suppose if I'd gone around being called adultery pulsifer, I'd want to hurt as many people as possible. I think he just didn't like women very much. Oh, well, thanks for taking it so well, said Newt. I mean, he must have been an ancestor. There aren't many pulsifers. Maybe that's why I sort of met up with the Witchfinder army. Could be fate he said, hopefully. She shook her head. No, she said. No such thing. Anyway, witch-finding isn't like it was in those days. I don't even think old Shadwell's ever done more than kick over Doris Stokes's dustbins. Between you and me, Agnes was a bit of a, a difficult character, said Anathema, vaguely. She had no middle gears. Newt waved the bit of paper. But what's it got to do with this? he said. She wrote it. Well, the original. It's number 3819 of the Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, first published 1655. Newt stared at the prophecy again. His mouth opened and shut. She knew I'd crash my car, he said. Yes. Well, no, probably not. It's hard to say. You see... Agnes was the worst prophet that's ever existed, because she was always right. That's why the book never sold. Most psychic abilities are caused by a simple lack of temporal focus, and the mind of Agnes Nutter was so far adrift in time that she was considered pretty mad even by the standards of 17th-century Lancashire, where mad prophetesses were a growth industry. But she was a treat to listen to, everyone agreed. She used to go on about curing illnesses by using a sort of mould and the importance of washing your hands so that the tiny little animals who caused diseases would be washed away when every sensible person knew that a good stink was the only defence against the demons of ill health. She advocated running at a sort of gentle bouncing trot as an aid to living longer, which was extremely suspicious and first put the witch-finders on to her and stressed the importance of fibre in diet, although here she was clearly ahead of her time, since most people were less bothered about the fibre in their diet than the gravel. And she wouldn't cure warts. It is all in your mind, she'd say. Forget about it, and it will go away. It was obvious that Agnes had a line to the future, but it was an unusually narrow and specific line. In other words, almost totally useless. Uh, how do you mean? said Newt. She managed to come up with the kind of predictions that you can only understand after the thing has happened, said Anathema. Like, do not uh, buy a Betamax. That was a prediction for 1972. Well, you mean she predicted videotape recorders? No, she just picked up one little fragment of information said Anathema. That's the point. Most of the time she comes up with such an oblique reference that you can't work it out until it's gone past, and then it all slots into place. 
and she didn't know what was going to be important or not, so it's all a bit hit and miss. Her prediction for November the 22nd, 1963, was about a house falling down in King's Lynn. Oh? Newt looked politely blank. President Kennedy was assassinated, said Anathema, helpfully. But Dallas didn't exist then, you see, whereas King's Lynn was quite important. Oh. She was generally very good if her descendants were involved. Oh? And she wouldn't know anything about the internal combustion engine. To her, they were just funny chariots. Even my mother thought it referred to an emperor's carriage overturning. You see, it's not enough to know what the future is. You have to know what it means. See, Agnes was like someone looking at a huge picture down a tiny little tube. She wrote down what seemed like good advice based on what she understood of the tiny little glimpses. Sometimes you can be lucky, Anathema went on. My great-grandfather worked out about the stock market crash of 1929, for example, two days before it actually happened. Made a fortune. You could say we're professional descendants. She looked sharply at Newt. You see, what no one ever realised until about 200 years ago is that the nice and accurate prophecies was Agnes's idea of a family heirloom. Many of the prophecies relate to her descendants and their well-being. She was sort of trying to look after us after she'd gone. That's the reason for the King's Lynn prophecy, we think. My father was visiting there at the time, so, from Agnes's point of view, while he was unlikely to be struck by stray rounds from Dallas, there was a good chance he might be hit by a brick. Oh, what a nice person, said Newt. You could almost overlook her blowing up an entire village. Anathema ignored this. Anyway, that's about it, she said. Ever since then, we've made it our job to interpret them. After all, it averages out at about one prophecy a month. More now, in fact, as we get closer to the end of the world. And when is that going to be? said Newt. Anathema looked meaningfully at the clock. He gave a horrible little laugh that he hoped sounded suave and worldly. After the event so far today, he wasn't feeling very sane. And he could smell Anathema's perfume, which made him uncomfortable. Think yourself lucky I don't need a stopwatch, said Anathema. We've got, oh, about five or six hours. Newt turned this over in his mind. Thus far in his life... He'd never had the urge to drink alcohol, but something told him there had to be a first time. Do witches keep drink in the house? he ventured. Oh, yes. She smiled, the sort of smile Agnes Nutter probably smiled when unpacking the contents of her lingerie drawer. Green bubbly stuff with strange things squirming on the congealing surface. You should know that. A sign. Got any ice? It turned out to be gin. There was ice. Anathema, who had picked up witchcraft as she went along, disapproved of liquor in general, but approved of it in her specific case. Did I tell you about the Tibetan coming out of a hole in the road? Newt said, relaxing a bit. Oh, I know about them, she said, shuffling the papers on the table. 
The two of them came out of the front lawn yesterday. The poor things were quite bewildered, so I gave them a cup of tea, and then they borrowed a spade and went down again. I don't think they quite know what they're supposed to be doing. Newt felt slightly aggrieved. Well, how did you know they were Tibetan? He said. If it comes to that, how did you know? Did he go, om, when you hit him? Well, he, he looked a Tibetan, said Newt. A saffron robes, bald head, you know, Tibetan. One of mine spoke quite good English. It seems that one minute he was repairing radios in Lhasa, next minute he was in a tunnel. He doesn't know how he's going to get home. Though if you sent him up the road, he could probably have got a lift on a flying saucer, said Newt gloomily. Three aliens, one of them a little tin robot. Oh, they landed on your lawn too, did they? It's about the only place they didn't land, according to the radio. They keep coming down all over the world, delivering a short, trite message of cosmic peace. And when people say, yes, well, they give them a blank look and take off again. Signs and portents, just like Agnes said. You're going to tell me she predicted all this too, I suppose. Anathema leafed through a battered card index in front of her. I kept meaning to put it all on computer, she said. Word searches and so forth. You know, it'll make it a lot simpler. The prophecies are arranged in any old order, but there are clues, handwriting, and so. She did it all in a card index, said Newt. No, a book. But I've, um, mislaid it. We've always had copies, of course. Lost it, eh? said Newt, trying to inject some humour into the proceedings. I bet she didn't foresee that. Anathema glowered at him. If looks could kill, Newt would have been on a slab. Then she went on. We've built up quite a concordance over the years, though, and my grandfather came up with a useful cross-referencing system. Uh, ah, here we are. She pushed a sheet of paper in front of Newt. 3988. When men of Crocus come from the earth, and green man from the sky, yet ken not why, and Pluto's bars quit the lightning castles, and sunken lands riseth, and Leviathan runneth free, and Brazil is vert, then three cometh together, and four arise upon iron horses ride, I tell you, the end draweth nigh. And he looked at the notes. Crocus equals saffron. CF 2003. Aliens? Paratroops? Nuclear power stations. C cuttings numbers 798 to 806. Atlantis cuttings 812 to 819. Leviathan equals whale, CF1981. South America is green, 3 equals 4. Railways, Iron Road, CF2675. I didn't get all of this one in advance, Anathema admitted. I filled it in after listening to the news. You must be incredibly good at crosswords in your family, said Newt. I think Agnes is getting a bit out of her depth here anyway. The bits about Leviathan and South America and threes and fours could mean anything. She sighed. The problem is newspapers. 
You never know if Agnes is referring to some tiny little incident that you might miss. Do you know how long it takes to go through every daily paper thoroughly every morning? Three hours and ten minutes, said Newt automatically. I expect we'll get a medal or something, said Adam optimistically. Rescuing a man from a blazing wreck. It wasn't blazing, said Pepper. It wasn't even very wrecked when we put it back right side up. Well, it could have been, Adam pointed out. I don't see why we shouldn't have a medal just because some old car doesn't know when to catch fire. They stood looking down at the hole. Anathema had called the police, who had put it down to subsidence and put some cones around it. It was dark and went down a long way. Could be good fun going to Tibet, said Brian. We could learn marital arts and stuff. I saw this old film where there's this valley in Tibet and everyone there lives for hundreds of years. It's called Shangri-La. My aunt Spangle is called Shangri-La, said Wensleydale. Adam snorted. Not very clever naming a valley after some old bungalow, he said. Might as well call it Dunromin or the Laurels. Slot better than Shambles, anyway, said Wensleydale mildly. Shambala, corrected Adam. I expect it's the same place. Probably got both names, said Pepper, with unusual diplomacy. Like our house. We changed the name from The Lodge to Norton View when we moved in, but we still get letters addressed to Theo C. Coupier, The Lodge. Perhaps they've named it Shambhala now, but people still call it The Laurels. Adam flicked a pebble into the hole. He was becoming bored with Tibetans. What should we do now? said Pepper. They're dipping sheep over at Norton Bottom Farm. We could go and help. Adam threw a larger stone into the hole and waited for the thump. It didn't come. Dunno, he said distantly. I reckon we should do something about whales and forests and such like. Like what? said Brian, who enjoyed the diversions available at a good sheep dipping. He began to empty his pockets of crisp packets and drop them one by one into the hole. We could go into Tabfield this afternoon and not have a hamburger, said Pepper. If all four of us don't have one, that's millions of acres of rainforest they won't have to cut down. Oh, they'll be cutting them down anyway, said Wensleydale. It's grass materialism again, said Adam. Same with the whales. It's amazing the stuff that's going on. He stared at Dog. He was feeling very odd. The little mongrel, noticing the attention, balanced expectantly on its hind legs. It's people like you that's eaten all the whales, said Adam, severely. I bet you've used up nearly a whole whale already. Dog, one last tiny satanic spark of his soul hating himself for it, put his head on one side and whined. It's going to be a fine old world to grow up in. Adam said. No whales, no air, and everyone paddling around because of the seas rising. Then the Atlanticans would be the only ones well off, said Pepper cheerfully. Huh, said Adam, not really listening. Something was happening inside his head. It was aching. Thoughts were arriving there without him having to think them. Something was saying, You can do something, Adam Young. You can make it all better. You can do anything you want. And what was saying this to him was him. Part of him, deep down, 
part of him that had been attached to him all these years and, and not really noticed, like a shadow. It was saying, yes, it's a rotten world. It could have been great, but now it's rotten. And it's time to do something about it. That's what you're here for. To make it all better. Because they'd be able to go everywhere, Pepper went on, giving him a worried look. The Atlantisans, I mean. Because... I'm fed up with the old Atlantisans and Tibetans, snapped Adam. They stared at him. They'd never seen him like this before. It's all very well for them, said Adam. Everyone's going around using up all the whales and coal and oil and ozone and rainforests and that, and there'll be none left for us. We shall be going to Mars and stuff, instead of sitting around in the dark and wet with the air spilling away. This wasn't the old Adam the them knew. The them avoided one another's faces. With Adam in this mood, the world seemed a chillier place. Seems to me, said Brian pragmatically, seems to me... The best thing you could do about it is stop reading about it. It's like you said the other day, said Adam. You grow up reading about pirates and cowboys and spacemen and stuff, and just when you think the world's all full of amazing things, they tell you it's really all dead whales and chopped down forests and nuclear waste hanging about for millions of years. It's not worth growing up for, if you ask my opinion. The them exchanged glances. There was a shadow over the whole world. Storm clouds were building up in the north, the sunlight glowing yellow off them, as though the sky had been painted by an enthusiastic amateur. Seems to me it ought to be rolled up and started all over again, said Adam. That hadn't sounded like Adam's voice. A bitter wind blew through the summer woods. Adam looked at Dog, who tried to stand on his head. There was a distant mutter of thunder. He reached down and patted the dog absent-mindedly. Serve everyone right if all the nuclear bombs went off and it all started again. Only properly organised, said Adam. Sometimes I think that's what I'd like to happen. And then we could sort everything out. The thunder growled again. Pepper shivered. This wasn't the normal them-mobius bickering which passed many a slow hour. There was a look in Adam's eye that his friend couldn't quite fathom. Not devilment, because that was more or less there all the time, but a sort of blank greyness that was far worse. Well, I don't know about we, Pepper tried. Don't know about the we, because if there's all these bombs going off, we all get blown up. Speaking as a mother of unborn generations, I'm against it. They looked at her curiously. She shrugged. And then giant ants take over the world, said Wensleydale, nervously. I, I saw this film. Or you go around with sawn-off shotguns and everyone's got these cars with, you know, knives and guns stuck on. I wouldn't allow any giant ants or anything like that, said Adam, brightening up horribly. And you'd all be all right. I'd see to that. It'd be wicked, eh, to have all the world to ourselves, wouldn't it? We could share it out. We could have amazing games. We could have war with real armies and stuff. But there wouldn't be any people, said Pepper. 
Oh, I could make us some people, said Adam, airily. Good enough for armies, at any rate. We'd all have a quarter of the world each. Like you, he pointed to Pepper, who recoiled as though Adam's finger were a white-hot poker, could have Russia, because it's red and you've got red hair, right? And Wensley can have America, and Brown can have, um, can have Africa and Europe, and, and, and... Even in their state of mounting terror, the them gave this the consideration it deserved. Uh, 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 stuttered Pepper as the rising wind whipped at her T-shirt. Uh, I, I don't see um, why Wensley's got America, and all I've got is just Russia. Russia's boring. Well, you can have China and Japan and India, said Adam. Well, that means I've got just Africa and a lot of just boring little countries, said Brian, negotiating even on the curl of the catastrophe curve. I wouldn't mind Australia, he added. Pepper nudged him and shook her head urgently. Dog's going to have Australia, said Adam, his eyes glowing with the fires of creation. On account of him needing a lot of space to run about, and there's all those rabbits and kangaroos for him to chase, and... The clouds spread forwards and sideways, like ink poured into a bowl of clear water, moving across the sky faster than the wind. But there won't be any rab... Wensleydale shrieked. Adam wasn't listening, at least to any voices outside his own head. It's all too much of a mess, he said. We should start again. Just save the ones we want and start again. That's the best way. It'll be doing the earth a favour when you come to think about it. It makes me angry, seeing the way those old loonies are messing it up. It's memory, you see, said Anathema. It works backwards as well as forwards. Racial memory, I mean. Newt gave her a polite but blank look. What I'm trying to say, she said patiently, is that Agnes didn't see the future. That's just a metaphor. She remembered it. Not very well, of course. And by the time it had been filtered through her own understanding, it's often a bit confused. We think she's best at remembering things that were going to happen to her descendants. But if you're going to places and doing things because of what she wrote, and what she wrote is her recollection of the places you went to and the things you did, said Newt, then I know. But there's um, some evidence that that's how it works, said Anathema. They looked at the map spread out between them. Beside them, the radio murmured. Newt was very aware that a woman was sitting next to him. Be professional, he told himself. You're a soldier, aren't you? Well, practically. Then act like a soldier. He thought hard for a fraction of a second. Well, act like a respectable soldier on his best behaviour, then. He forced his attention back to the matter at hand. Why Lower Tadfield? said Newt. I just got interested because of the weather. Optimal microclimate, they call it. That means it's a small place with its own personal nice weather. He glanced at her notebooks. There was definitely something odd about the place, even if you ignored Tibetans and UFOs which seemed to be infesting the whole world these days. The Tadfield area didn't only have the kind of weather you could set your calendar by, it was also remarkably resistant to change. No one seemed to build new houses there. The population didn't seem to move much. 
There seem to be more woods and hedges than you'd normally expect these days. The only battery farm to open in the area had failed after a year or two and had been replaced by an old-fashioned pig farmer who let his pigs run loose in his apple orchards and sold the pork at premium prices. The two local schools seemed to soldier on in blissful immunity from the changing fashions of education. A motorway, which should have turned most of Lower Tadfield into little more than the Junction 18 Happy Pork Arrest Area, changed course five miles away, detoured in a great semicircle, and continued on its way, oblivious to the little island of rural changelessness it had avoided. No one quite seemed to know why. One of the surveyors involved had a nervous breakdown, a second had become a monk, and a third had gone off to Bali to paint nude women. It was as if a large part of the 20th century had marked a few square miles out of bounds. Anathema pulled another card out of her index and flicked it across the table. Two, three, one, five. Some say it cometh in London town or New York, but uh, they be wrong, for the place is tadders filled. Strong in his power, he cometh like a knight in the fief. He divideth the world into four parters. He bringeth the storm. And then the notes. Four years early, New Amsterdam till 1664, Tadville, Norfolk, Tardesfield, Devon, Tadfield, Oxon. See Revelation, chapter 6. Verse 10. I had to go and look through a lot of county records, said Anathema. Why is this one 2315? It's earlier than the others. Well, Agnes was a bit slapdash about timing. I don't think she always knew what went where. I told you we'd spent ages devising a sort of system for chaining them together. Newt looked at a few cards. For example, 1111. And the great hound shall come, and the two powers shall watch in vain. For it goeth where is its master, where they wot not, and he shall name it, true to its nature, and hell shall flee it. Notes. Is this something to do with Bismarck? AF device, June 8, 1888. Schleswig-Holstein... She's being unusually obtuse for Agnes, said Anathema. 3017. I see four riding, bringing the end, and the angels of hell ride with them, and three shall rise, and four and four together be four, and the dark angel shall own defeat, yet the man shall claim his own. Notes. The apocalyptic horseman... The man equals Pan, the devil, the witch trials of Lancashire, Brewster, 1782. Another note. I feel good Agnes had drunk well this night. Quincy device, October 15, 1789. Another. I concur. We are all human, alas. Miss O.J. device, January 5, 1854. Why nice and accurate, said Newt. Nice as inexact or precise, said Anathema, in the weary tones of one who'd explained this before. That's what it used to mean. 
But look, said Newt. He'd nearly convinced himself about the non-existence of the UFO, which was clearly a figment of his imagination. And the Tibetan could have been a... Well, he was working on it, but whatever it was, it wasn't a Tibetan. But what he was more and more convinced of was that he was in a room with a very attractive woman who appeared actually to like him, or at least not to dislike him, which was a definite first for Newt. And admittedly, there seemed to be a lot of strange stuff going on, but if he really tried poling the boat of common sense upstream against the raging current of the evidence, he could pretend it was all, well, weather balloons or Venus or mass hallucination. In short, whatever Newt was now thinking with, it wasn't his brain. But look, he said, the world isn't really going to end now, is it? I mean, just look around. It's not like there's any international tension. Well, any more than there normally is. Why don't we leave this stuff for a while and just go and, um, oh, I don't know, maybe we could just go for a walk or something. I mean, don't you understand? There's something here, something that affects the area, she said. It's twisted all the ley lines. It's protecting the area against anything that might change it. It's... it's... There it was again, the thought in her mind that she could not, was not allowed to grasp, like a dream upon waking. The windows rattled. Outside, a sprig of jasmine, driven by the wind, started to bang insistently on the glass. But I can't get a fix on it, said Anathema, twisting her fingers together. I've tried everything. Fix, said Newt. I've tried the pendulum. I've tried the theodolite. I'm psychic, you see, but it seems to move around. Newt was still in control of his own mind enough to do the proper translation. When most people said, I'm psychic, you see, they meant... I have an overactive but unoriginal imagination where black nail varnish talked to my budgie. When Anathema said it, it sounded as though she was admitting to a hereditary disease which she'd much prefer not to have. Armageddon moves around, said Newt. Various prophecies say the Antichrist has to arise first, said Anathema. Agnes says he. I can't spot him. Or her, said Newt. What? Well, it could be a her, said Newt. This is the twentieth century, after all. Equal opportunities. I don't think you're taking this entirely seriously, she said severely. Anyway, there isn't any evil here. That's what I don't understand. There's just love. Sorry, said Newt. She gave him a helpless look. It's hard to describe it, she said. Something or someone loves this place, loves every inch of it so powerfully that it shields and protects it. A deep-down, huge, fierce love. How can anything bad start here? How can the end of the world start in a place like this? This is the kind of town you'd want to raise your kids in. It's a kid's paradise. She smiled weakly. You should see the local kids. They're unreal. Right out of the boys' own paper. All scabby knees and brilliant and bull's eyes. She nearly had it. She could feel the shape of the thought. She was 
gaining on it. What's this place? said Newt. What? Anathema screamed as her train of thought was derailed. Newt's finger tapped at the map. Disused aerodrome, it says. Just here, look, west of Tadfield itself. Anathema snorted. Disused? Don't you believe it? Used to be a wartime fighter base. It's been up at Tadfield Air Base for about ten years or so. And before you say it, the answer's no. I hate everything about the bloody place, but the colonel's saner than you are by a long way. His wife does yoga, for God's sake. Now, what was it she'd said before? The kids round here? She felt her mental feet slipping away from under her, and she fell back into the more personal thought waiting there to catch her. Newt was okay, really. And the thing about spending the rest of your life with him was it wouldn't be around long enough to get on your nerves. The radio was talking about South American rainforests. New ones. It began to hail. Bullets of ice shredded the leaves around the them as Adam led them down into the quarry. Dog slunk along with his tail between his legs, whining. This wasn't right, he was thinking. Just when I was getting the hang of rats, just when I'd nearly sorted out that bloody German shepherd across the road. Now he's going to end it all, and I'll be back with the old glowing eyes and chasing lost souls. What's the sense in that? They don't fight back, and there's no taste to them. Wensleydale, Brian and Pepper were not thinking quite so coherently. All that they were aware of was that they could no more not follow Adam than fly. To try to resist the force marching them forward would simply result in multiple broken legs, and they'd still have to march. Adam wasn't thinking at all. Something had opened in his mind and was aflame. He sat them down on the crate. We'll all be all right down here, he said. Yeah, said Wensleydale. Don't you think our, our mothers and fathers... Oh, don't you worry about them, said Adam loftily. I can make some new ones. There won't be any of this being in bed by half past nine either. You don't ever have to go to bed ever if you don't want to, or tidy your room or anything. You just leave it all to me and it will be great. He gave them a manic smile. I've got some new friends coming, he confided. You'll like them. But, Wensleydale began, you just think of all the amazing stuff afterwards, said Adam enthusiastically. You can fill up America with all new cowboys and Indians and policemen and gangsters and cartoons and spacemen and stuff. Won't that be fantastic? Wensleydale looked miserably at the other two. They were sharing a thought that none of them would be able to articulate very satisfactorily, even in normal times. Broadly, it was that there had once been real cowboys and gangsters, and that was great. And there would always be pretend cowboys and gangsters, and that was also great. But real pretend cowboys and gangsters that were alive and not alive and could be put back in their box when you were tired of them, this did not seem great at all. The whole point about gangsters and cowboys and aliens and pirates was that you could stop being them and go home. But before all that, said Adam darkly, we're really going to show them. There was a tree in the plaza.
It wasn't very big, and the leaves were yellow, and the light it got through the excitingly dramatic smoked glass was the wrong sort of light. And it was on more drugs than an Olympic athlete, and loudspeakers nested in the branches. But it was a tree, and if you half closed your eyes and looked at it over the artificial waterfall, you could almost believe that you were looking at a sick tree through a fog of tears. Jaime Hernes liked to have his lunch under it. The maintenance supervisor would shout at him if he found out, but Jaime had grown up on a farm, and it had been quite a good farm, and he had liked trees, and he didn't want to have to come into the city. But what could you do? It wasn't a bad job, and the money was the kind of money his father hadn't dreamed of. His grandfather hadn't dreamed of any money at all. He hadn't even known what money was until he was fifteen. But there were times when you needed trees. And the shame of it, Jaime thought, was that his children were growing up thinking of trees as firewood, and his grandchildren would think of trees as history. But what could you do? Where there were trees now, there were big farms. Where there were small farms now, there were plazas. And where there were plazas, there were still plazas, and that's how it went. He hid his trolley behind the newspaper stand, sat down furtively, and opened his lunchbox. It was then that he became aware of the rustling, and a movement of shadows across the floor. He looked around. The tree was moving. He watched it with interest. Jaime had never seen a tree growing before. The soil, which was nothing more than a scree of some sort of artificial chippings, was actually crawling as the roots moved around under the surface. Jaime saw a thin white shoot creep down the side of the raised garden area and prod blindly at the concrete of the floor. Without knowing why, without ever knowing why, he nudged it gently with his foot, until it was close to the crack between the slabs. It found it and bored down. The branches were twisting into different shapes. Jaime heard the screech of traffic outside the building, but didn't pay it any attention. Someone was yelling something, but someone was always yelling in Jaime's vicinity, often at him. The questing root must have found the buried soil. It changed colour and thickened like a fire hose when the water is turned on. The artificial waterfall stopped running. Jaime visualised fractured pipes blocked with sucking fibres. Now he could see what was happening outside. The street surface was heaving like a sea. Saplings were pushing up between the cracks. Of course, he reasoned, they had sunlight. His tree didn't. All it had was the muted grey light that came through the dome four storeys up. Dead light. But what could you do? You could do this. The elevators had stopped running because the power was off, but it was only four flights of stairs. Jaime carefully shut his lunchbox and padded back to his cart, where he selected his longest broom. People were pouring out of the building, yelling. Jaime moved amiably against the flow like a salmon going upstream. A white framework of girders, which the architect had presumably thought made a dynamic statement about something or other, held up the smoked glass dome. In fact, it was some sort of plastic, 
and it took Jaime perched on a convenient strip of girder all his strength and the full leverage of the broom's length to crack it. A couple more swings brought it down in lethal shards. The light poured in, lighting up the dust in the plaza so that the air looked as though it was full of fireflies. Far below, the tree burst the walls of its brushed concrete prison and rose like an express train. Jaime had never realised that trees made a sound when they grew, and no one else had realised it either, because the sound is made over hundreds of years, in waves, 24 hours from peak to peak. Speed it up, and the sound a tree makes is vroom. Jaime watched it come toward him like a green mushroom cloud. Steam was billowing out from around its roots. The girders never stood a chance. The remnant of the dome went up like a ping-pong ball on a water spray. It was the same all over the city, except that you couldn't see the city anymore. All you could see was the canopy of green. It stretched from horizon to horizon. Jaime sat on his branch, clung to a liana, and laughed and laughed and laughed. Presently, it began to rain. The Kapamaki, a whaling research ship, was currently researching the question, how many whales can you catch in one week? Except that today, there weren't any whales. The crew stared at the screens, which, by the application of ingenious technology, could spot anything larger than a sardine and calculate its net value on the international oil market, and found them blank. The occasional fish that did show up was barreling through the water as if in a great hurry to get elsewhere. The captain drummed his fingers on the console. He was afraid that he might soon be conducting his own research project to find out what happened to a statistically small sample of whaler captains who came back without a factory ship full of research material. He wondered what they did to you. Maybe they locked you in a room with a harpoon gun and expected you to do the honourable thing. This was unreal. There ought to be something. The navigator punched up a chart and stared at it. Honourable sir, he said. What is it? said the captain testily. We seem to have a miserable instrument failure. Seabed in this area should be 200 metres. What of it? I'm reading 15,000 metres, honourable sir. And still falling. That is foolish. There is no such depth. The captain glared at several million yen worth of cutting-edge technology and thumped it. The navigator gave a nervous smile. Ah, sir, he said, it is shallower already. Beneath the thunders of the upper deep, as Aziravale and Tennyson both knew, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, the kraken sleepeth. And now it was waking up. Millions of tons of deep ocean ooze cascade off its flanks as it rises. See, said the navigator, 3,000 metres already. The kraken doesn't have eyes. There has never been anything for it to look at. But as it billows up through the icy waters, it picks up the microwave noise of the sea, the sorrowing beeps and whistles of the whale song. Ah, said the navigator, one thousand meters? The kraken is not amused. Five hundred meters? 
The factory ship rocks on the sudden swell. A hundred meters? There is a tiny metal thing above it. The croken stirs. And ten billion sushi dinners cry out for vengeance. The cottage windows burst inward. This wasn't a storm, it was war. Fragments of jasmine whirled across the room, mingled with the rain of file cards. Newt and Anathema clung to one another in the space between the overturned table and the wall. Go on, muttered Newt. Tell me Agnes predicted this. She did say, he bringeth the storm, said Anathema. Well, this is a bloody hurricane. Did she say what's supposed to happen next? 2315 is cross-referenced to 3477, said Anathema. You can remember details like that at a time like this? Well, since you mention it, yes, she said. She held out a card. 3477, let the wheel of fate turn, let hearts enjoin. There are other fires than mine. When the wind bloweth, the blossoms reach out one to another. For the calm cometh when red and white and black and pale approach to peas is our profession. And... The family notes. Some mysticism here, one fears. AF device, October 17, 1889. Peas, blossoms, OFD, 1929, September 4. Revelations, Chapter 6, again, I presume. Dr. Thomas, device, 1835. Newt read it again. There was a sound outside like a sheet of corrugated iron pinwheeling across the garden, which was exactly what it was. Is this supposed to mean, he said slowly, that we're supposed to become an, uh, an item? That Agnes? <laughs> what a joker! Courting is always difficult when the one being courted has an elderly female relative in the house. They tend to mutter or cackle or bum cigarettes or, in the worst cases, get out the family photograph album, an act of aggression in the sex war which ought to be banned by a Geneva Convention. It's much worse when the relative has been dead for 300 years. Newt had indeed been harbouring certain thoughts about anathema. Well, not just harbouring them, in fact, but dry-docking them, refitting them, giving them a good coat of paint and scraping the barnacles off their bottom. But the idea of Agnes's second sight boring into the back of his neck sloshed over his libido like a bucketful of cold water. He'd even been entertaining the idea of inviting her out for a meal. But he hated the idea of some Cromwellian witch sitting in her cottage three centuries earlier and watching him eat. He was in the mood in which people burned witches. His life was quite complicated enough without it being manipulated across the centuries by some crazed old woman. A thump in the grate sounded like part of the chimney stack coming down. And then he thought, my life isn't complicated at all. I can see it as clearly as Agnes might. It stretches all the way to early retirement, a whip round from the people in the office, a bright little neat flat somewhere, a neat little empty death. Except now I'm going to die under the ruins of a cottage during what might just possibly be the end of the world.
The recording angel won't have any trouble with me. My life must have been dittos on every page for years. I mean, what have I ever really done? I've never robbed a bank. I've never had a parking ticket. I've never eaten Thai food. Somewhere another window caved in with a merry tinkle of breaking glass. Anathema put her arms around him with a sigh which really didn't sound disappointed at all. I've never been to America or France, because Calais doesn't really count. I've never learned to play a musical instrument. The radio died as the power lines finally gave up. He buried his face in her hair. I've never... There was a pinging sound. Shadwell, who had been bringing the army paybooks up to date, looked up in the middle of signing for Witchfinder Lance Corporal Smith. It took him a while to notice that the gleam of Newt's pin was no longer on the map. He got down from his stool, muttering under his breath, and searched around on the floor until he found it. He gave it another polish and put it back in Tadfield. He was just signing for Witchfinder Private Table, who got an extra tuppence a year hay allowance, when there was another ping. He retrieved the pin, glared at it suspiciously, and pushed it so hard into the map that the plaster behind it gave way. Then he went back to the ledgers. There was a ping. This time the pin was several feet from the wall. Shadwell picked it up, examined its point, pushed it into the map, and watched it. After about five seconds, it shot past his ear. He scrabbled for it on the floor, replaced it on the map, and held it there. It moved under his hand. He leaned his weight on it. A tiny thread of smoke curled out of the map. Shadwell gave a whimper and sucked his fingers as the red-hot pin ricocheted off the opposite wall and smashed a window. It didn't want to be in Tadfield. Ten seconds later, Shadwell was rummaging through the W.A.'s cash box, which yielded a handful of copper, a ten-shilling note, and a small counterfeit coin from the reign of James I. Regardless of personal safety, he rummaged in his own pockets. The results of the trawl, even with his pensioner's concessionary travel pass taken into consideration, was barely enough to get him out of the house, let alone to Tadfield. The only other people he knew who had money were Mr. Rajit and Madame Tracy. As far as the Rajits were concerned, the question of seven weeks' rent would probably crop up in any financial discussion he instigated at this point. And as for Madame Tracy, who'd only be too willing to lend him a handful of used tenors, I'll be swagger if I'll tuck the widges of sin fray the pinted Jezebel, he said, which left... No one else. Save one. The Southern Pansy. They'd each been here just once, spending as little time as possible in the room, and, in Aziraphale's case, trying not to touch any flat surface. The other one, the flash Southern bastard in the sunglasses, was, Shadwell suspected, not someone he ought to offend. In Shadwell's simple world, anyone in sunglasses who wasn't actually on a beach was probably a criminal. He suspected that Crowley was from the Mafia, or the Underworld, although he would have been surprised how right he nearly was. But the soft one in the camel-hair coat was a different matter, 
and he'd risked trailing him back to his base once, and he could remember the way. He thought Aziraphale was a Russian spy. He could ask him for money, threaten him a bit. It was terribly risky. Shadwell pulled himself together. Even now, young Newt might be suffering unimaginable tortures at the hands of the Daughters of Night, and he, Shadwell, had sent him. We cannot leave our people in there, he said, and put on his thin overcoat and shapeless hat and went out into the street. The weather seemed to be blowing up a bit. Aziraphale was dithering. He'd been dithering for some twelve hours. His nerves, he would have said, were all over the place. He walked around the shop, picking up bits of paper and dropping them again, fiddling with pens. He ought to tell Crowley. No, he didn't. He, he wanted to tell Crowley. He ought to tell Heaven. He was an angel, after all. You had to do the right thing. It was built in. You see a while, you thwart. Crowley had put his finger on it right enough. He ought to have told Heaven right from the start. But he'd known him for thousands of years. They got along. They nearly understood one another. He sometimes suspected they had far more in common with one another than with their respective superiors. They both liked the world, for one thing, rather than viewing it simply as a board on which the cosmic game of chess was being played. Well, of course, that was it. That was the answer staring him in the face. It'd be true to the spirit of his pact with Crowley if he tipped heaven the wink, and then they could quietly do something about the child. Although nothing too bad, of course, because we were all God's creatures when you got down to it, even people like Crowley and the Antichrist, and the world would be saved, and there wouldn't have to be all that Armageddon business, which would do nobody any good anyway, because everyone knew heaven would win in the end, and Crowley would be bound to understand. Yes, and then everything would be all right. There was a knock at the shop door, despite the closed sign. He ignored it. Getting in touch with heaven for two-way communications was far more difficult for a Aziraphale than it is for humans who don't expect an answer, and in nearly all cases would be rather surprised to get one. He pushed aside the paper-laden desk and rolled up the threadbare bookshop carpet. There was a small circle chalked on the floorboards underneath, surrounded by suitable passages from the Kabbalah. The angel lit seven candles, which he placed ritually at certain points around the circle. Then he lit some incense, which was not necessary, but did make the place smell nice. And then he stood in the circle and said the words. Nothing happened. He said the words again. Eventually, a bright blue shaft of light shot from the ceiling and filled the circle. A well-educated voice said, Well? It's me, Aziraphale. We know, said the voice. I've got great news. I've located the Antichrist. I can give you his address and everything. There was a pause. The blue light flickered. Well? It said again. But, uh, do you see, you can ki 
can stop it all happening in the nick of time. Uh, you've only got a few hours. You can stop it all, and there needn't be war, and everyone will be saved. He beamed madly into the light. Yes, said the voice. Yes, he's in a place called Lower Tadfield, and the address well done, said the voice in flat, dead tones. There doesn't have to be any of that business, with one-third of the seas turning to blood or anything, said Aziraphale happily. When it came, the voice sounded slightly annoyed. Why not? it said. Aziraphale felt an icy pit opening under his enthusiasm, and tried to pretend it wasn't happening. He plunged on. Well, you can simply make sure that we will win, Aziraphale. Well, yes, but the forces of darkness must be beaten. You seem to be under a misapprehension. The point is not to avoid the war. It is to win it. We have been waiting a long time, Aziraphale. Aziraphale felt the coldness envelop his mind. He opened his mouth to say, Do you think perhaps it would be a good idea not to hold the war on Earth? And changed his mind. I see, he said grimly. There was a scraping near the door, and if Aziraphale had been looking in that direction, he would have seen a battered felt hat trying to peer over the fanlight. This is not to say you have not performed well, said the voice. You will receive a commendation. Well done. Thank you, said Aziraphale. The bitterness in his voice would have soured milk. I'd forgotten about ineffability, obviously. We thought you had. May I ask, said the angel, to whom have I been speaking? The voice said, We are the Metatron. Footnote. The voice of God, but not the voice of God, an entity in its own right, rather like a presidential spokesman. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, <laughs> Well, uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Behind him, the letterbox tilted open, revealing a pair of eyes. One other thing, said the voice. You will, of course, be joining us, won't you? Well, uh, yeah, well of course. Uh, it, it has been simply ages since I've held a flaming sword. Aziraphale began. Yes, we recall, said the voice. You will have a lot of opportunity to relearn. Ah, mm, and what sort of initiating event will precipitate the war? said Aziraphale. We thought a multination nuclear exchange would be a nice start. Oh, yes, very imaginative. Aziraphale's voice was flat and hopeless. Good. We will expect you directly, then, said the voice. Ah, well... I'll just clear up a few business matters, uh, shall I? said Aziraphale desperately. There hardly seems to be any necessity, said the Metatron. Aziraphale drew himself up. I really feel that probity, not to say morality, demands that as a reputable businessman I should... Yes, yes, said the Metatron a shade testily. Point taken. We shall await you then. The light faded, but did not quite vanish. They're leaving the line open, Aziraphale thought. I'm not getting out of this one.
Be hello, he said softly. Anyone still there? There was silence. Very carefully, he stepped over the circle and crept to the telephone. He opened his notebook and dialed another number. After four rings, it gave a little cough, followed by a pause, and then a voice which sounded so laid back you could put a carpet on it said, "Hi, this is Anthony Crowley. Uh, I, Crowley." Aziraphale tried to hiss and shout at the same time. Listen, I haven't got much time. The probably not in right now, or asleep and busy, or something. But shut up. Listen, it was in Tadfield. It's all in that book. You've got to stop after the tone, and I'll get right back to you. Ciao. I want to talk to you now. Be. Stop making noises. It's in Tadfield. That's what I was sensing. You must go there and. He took the phone away from his mouth. Bugger, he said. It was the first time he'd sworn in more than six thousand years.、Uh, hold on, the demon had another line, didn't he? He was that kind of person. Aziraphale fumbled in the book, nearly dropping it on the floor. They would be getting impatient soon. He found the other number. He dialed it. It was answered almost immediately, at the same time as the shop's bell tingled gently. Crowley's voice, getting louder as it neared the mouthpiece, said, "Really mean it." Hello, Crowley. It's me. The voice was horribly non-committal. Even in his present state, Aziraphale sensed trouble. "Are you alone?" he said cautiously. "No." No, I, I've got an old friend here. Listen. Oh, here he is, you spawn of hell! Very slowly, Aziraphale turned around.